As the racing season winds down, the separation season begins. Now, when I say separation season, I don't mean the season to separate yourself from racing, although that's exactly what many of your competitors are doing. And that provides an opportunity for you to separate from the pack. Within This Is Bracket Racing Elite, we focus on growth year-round, but the gains, they're, they're small, they're incremental during race season for two reasons. Number one, because your attention as a racer is split, right? You've got upkeep, maintenance, travel, all the things involved with the racing season, in addition to a focus on your own growth. And because other racers are working hard at that time too. It's this time of year, this separation season, where putting in the work can really allow you a leg up on the competition. If you're serious about doing just that, and you'd like to surround yourself with a group of knowledgeable trainers and accountable peers with the tools, the resources, the wisdom to help you take that next step, and perhaps even with the occasional kick in the pants to keep you on track, this is Bracket Racing Elite is the answer. We've helped thousands of racers just like you take the next step toward becoming the best version of themselves on the racetrack. Elite can help you do the same. Enrollment is open as of Monday, November 27th, and it closes December 8th. Learn more at thisisbracketracing.com slash elite. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Sportsman Drag Racing Podcast with Luke and Jed. I'm Big Jed, Jared Pennington. He's Cool Hand Luke Bogacki. If you're a regular listener, thank you for your patronage. If you're new, you'll probably catch on soon enough. Our goal is to shed some light on the events, news, and issues in sportsman drag racing and the stars within it. Welcome back, or welcome to the Sportsman Drag Racing Podcast, where we sometimes discuss U.S. Olympic athletes adult film stars, and sportsmen drag racers. Big Jed, we've got a lot to catch up on in this episode. We did not get an opportunity to get together last week. Shouts to Tyler Bohannon uh, for being last week's big interview. But we've got a couple weeks of racing to catch up on, several big events from all across the country. And then um, we close this episode out with a little bit of fun. Yeah, looks great show. It's got lots of uh, results and some racing discussions. It's got uh, our favorite time of the year sports-wise, some March Madness influence. We talk about your performance on the racetrack at an event that you were at. It would talk about mine at an event that I was at. This really has everything. This show is just full of a little bit of everything that we like to do, but mainly it's full of fun. And we hope you enjoy that uh, that portion of the show. Again, you don't have to be a basketball fan. You just need to be a fan of uh, bracket racing as we know it today to, to get uh, some enjoyment out of that segment. So make sure you stay tuned in for it. That's every week here on the Sportsman Drag Racing Podcast, Big Jed. We got, a, we got something for everyone. We, we touch all bases. Now, seriously, if you're looking at the ticker, and you probably are, um, this one of if not the longest episode of the Sportsman Drag Racing Podcast, and we've had some doozies. Um, but the first, what, hour-ish, Big Jed, is, uh, is dedicated to, to current events. The second hour, March Madness, our chicanery. So, like, if you want the serious stuff, beginning. If you want the fun stuff, it's more towards the end. Um, 
Yeah. Yeah. All that and more. But first, P Jizzle for Rizzle. And the mission. All right, Jed, lots of on-track action to talk about, really, from every corner of the country and every form of sportsman drag racing. But I think it's only right to lead with the one thing that we never want to talk about, but um, is certainly dominating conversation and dominating the minds of sportsman drag racers as we record. Yeah, Luke, these are uh, definitely conversations we hate to have, but certainly... Um, you know, the, the people that make up our sport when bad things happen, we, we want to, to shed some light on what's happened and certainly honor those individuals that have fallen uh, doing what we all love to do. And unfortunately, uh, I was down in Gulfport at the Footbreak 150 this weekend and uh, got word that um, Lucas McKinney, a young racer from Northeastern Tennessee had um, had an accident at Farmington and unfortunately did not make it through Luke. He passed due to injuries and such a freak, freak thing. And and I'll, I'll sit here and say guilty as charged as one of the people that has gotten his uh, equipment, safety equipment off, while still on the, the racing surface in the shutdown area, no less, but still on the surface. I've been uh, a guy that's done that many times in my life. And unfortunately, uh, Lucas did that at Farmington and kind of a weird deal. He was racing a friend's um, tube chassis Chevette and the run was over. And apparently Lucas had, uh, had unbuckled and uh, taken the helmet off and, and it sounds like even the jacket I, that's uh that's not confirmed, but it sounded like that happened. And maybe the other car got close to him for some reason. And Lucas maybe just caught it out of the corner of his eye. Again, there's some speculation there and I hate to do that, but uh, reacted to that by turning the steering wheel quickly to maybe get away. Unfortunately, the car went into barrel roll and um, the, the first on the scene, um, as I hear it was Doug Foley and, uh, said it was it was very bad and unfortunately Lucas did not make it through that incident and a uh, talented young racer Luke 22 years old really good on the racetrack just a quality individual with a great family his parents uh, parked by me at our Bristol events up on the hill uh, they're great people Todd and, and Luke's mom just wonderful folks and um i know that they're really struggling right now with this and certainly don't want to make this sound the wrong way or or definitely don't condemn it but you know it's just one of those subtle reminders and not so subtle it's actually a brutal reminder of how dangerous it is doing what we do and that it's not over until you get back to the trailer and get parked even when we think we're safe and things are done, bad things can happen. So it's just one of those reminders of, of us needing to take every precaution we can to protect ourselves on a racetrack because you just never know what to happen. And uh, our, our, certainly our thoughts and prayers are with uh, the McKinney family and all of his friends and family that are impacted this uh, tremendous loss in the racing community, Luke. 
yeah i didn't i didn't know the whole story until you shared it right there jed like that's awful and horrendous and and yeah i mean a reminder to all of us that the this game that we play that we take for granted is obviously it has its dangers that that sounds like a bizarre incident just like you i'm i'm, I'm guilty of um you know unclicking a lot of the the, the, the same things uh, as as i deem it safe you know nearing the um the turnoff and yeah i think uh, i think that we'll all think twice about that it's just uh yeah to hear that anytime but especially um someone so young with so much life to live that's uh oh, yeah just um i'll echo your thoughts and prayers for the family that's that's rough stuff yeah no doubt about it and uh, again those are the things that, that we definitely do not enjoy discussing on the show but uh lucas deserved a mention there he was a he was a well-connected racer you know in the age of social media um you feel like you know people from all over the place whether you know them or not and i know lucas had a a big circle of friends and and uh, acquaintances and um he uh he will definitely be missed and again our thoughts and prayers out to his family, his parents, and, and everyone impacted uh, by his loss. And we, uh, we definitely uh, hoped it, uh, that we all learned a little something from that. And, and Lucas, uh, fly high, my friend. So Luke, uh, let's get away from those things that make us sad and, and talk about some racing action that uh, you and I got to actually be a part of on, on different ends of the country. I was yeah. at- Yeah, we're still on the road. <laughs> yeah yeah you're still in the motorhome i see that uh where are you let's tell everybody where you are because it's very interesting where you are right now we are in uh camp verde arizona which is near sedona not too far from the grand canyon uh we're taking a grand canyon tour in a couple of days what might be the coolest granted i'm not much of an rv park connoisseur jed so I, I, it's not like i've been to a lot of them but this is the coolest one i've been to um <laughs> Kind of in the middle of nowhere. It's a it's a freaking gold mine that they call an RV park. This place has like four or five hundred stalls. It's sold out, and wow. it's gorgeous. And I wouldn't normally you wouldn't think of the desert as being gorgeous, but the elevation changes and everything up here. It's really cool, and uh, it's a really nice place. So yeah, if you're ever uh, in the area, it's uh, Camp Verde, Verde River RV, maybe something like that. Yeah, cool spot. Cool spot. Um, sounds like it so we've both been on the track recently and and obviously at a couple of events worth talking about here why don't you lead off because yours was most recent you just returned home as we record this from the foot break 150 and golf board you can give us a little bit of blow by blow if you want to of your personal performance uh but obviously from a from a broad view talk us through the event uh, yeah, I was in Gulfport, Mississippi at the footbreak 150, and I did arrive home at 12.23 a.m. this morning and I was at work at 6.33. So uh, it doesn't take a math genius to know that I did not get much rest, but I, uh, I had a blast, Luke. It's been probably four years since I competed in a significant uh, footbreak race, a weekend event where there was two or three days of racing. So I was uh, concerned about rust and uh, actually was really proud of myself. I hit the tree well, uh, did not drive the finish line very well and made some mistakes at the tree here and there that got me beat. But overall, um, I was super excited to participate. 
a lot of great foot brake racers in the lanes and in the pits and got to catch up with some old friends and, um, you know, got to, got to race with some folks that, you know, didn't know that I foot braked at one time. They thought I was just a top ball racer. So, uh, it was really cool to, you know, kind of a, what are you doing here type deal? And, you know, this is who I am really, but the, the announcing gigs turned me into a delay box racer primarily, but, uh, I had a blast again. Yeah, it was a really good time. You just made me feel old. How did that, how did that make you feel? People come up, you, what are you doing here? You, you don't foot brake. What? <laughs> well, it, uh, it definitely, um, it got at me a little bit. It, you know, it hurt my feelings just a little bit that folks don't know that I am really just an old foot brake racer that lets go of the button from time to time instead of the opposite. So, uh, it was, uh, you know, obviously some young people that had never seen me in the lanes with them. So it was cool stuff. And again, got to meet a lot of new faces. Galen Rollison, again, great event, another fantastic event for him down in Gulfport, Mississippi. The foot break 150 is uh, is a buy one, get one type deal. You, you pre-enter it. He takes 150 entries and you get a second one at no additional fee. So there's basically 300 in the race. And uh, it's just a, you know, a double entry battle all the way to the end. You know, everybody there has got two shots and really cool format. And we battled it out. Uh, actually, Friday had a 3K gamblers race where uh, stop me if you've heard this before. Nick Hastings got the win over Caleb Ellison. The, the cream rose to the top very quickly there uh, in the in the beginning of the weekend. Uh, good performance by those guys get their weekend started. But Saturday was a 20K and Sunday was a 20K, Luke. And uh, 20K foot brake race is a big deal. You know, it really is. It's still a big deal. It was a big deal when they started doing them in the early 2000s. And it's still a major event and there's very few of them running around for, for the foot breakers to chase in the country today. So a uh, great event. Chad Sandlin comes out of Texas, talented guy. Uh, one has, has won his share of big money foot break races for sure all around the Southwest and the Mid-South part of the country. But Chad had never gotten a 20. Uh, I was standing in, on the return road when he come back through and uh, stopped and chatted with him and he was super excited he said i always wanted one finally got one that's a really big deal winning 20k off the foot he got the win over taylor bowling taylor uh, out there in his freshly redone nova that that he did over the winter actually late summer all the way through the winter and just a talented uh, final round there with chad getting the better of him and then on sunday a uh, guy that we just talked about on the previous podcast uh, winning uh, maybe both days at the event, or maybe one and runner-up. I can't remember, but it was a dominant performance down there at Gulfport by Larry Sagan. He got the win over Rodney Hot Rod Fincham, Hot Rod, and the Nick Lucas-owned uh, um, um, Mustang, uh, rolling her deep there and making a final round of 20K. He's got a 20K win under his belt. That was Larry's first one that big on the bottom. So talented guys, again, going to the final. You said Fincham was going deep? How did he adjust to that? <laughs> well, yeah, I guess he just got lucky, Luke. I don't know. <laughs> he was definitely bumping her in deep. Uh, he, he does that whether he's going 590, 690s, 790s, or 890s. Actually, he did that in his minivan, too. But that's a whole other story for another show. Um, but uh, Larry Sagan got the win over Hot Rod, and Hot Rod turned her a little pink there in the final. So, a um, lot of great foot brake racing for two days. They did have junior dragsters as well. Luke. Saturday's junior winner was Bryce Fairley. 
over Maddie Chesney. Maddie uh, going to another final round at a Gulfport event. Great deal for Maddie there. And Sunday's winner was Chase Green. I do not know who Chase beat. I can't remember that racer, and I apologize for that. Uh, I'll try to dig that up here during the show and report that if I can. But it was really cool. Uh, Chase got the win in juniors, and his dad, which everybody knows, Josh Green, great guy, well-liked all over the place. Josh got the three, almost made it like an all-green final round victory deal for for both of them but really cool to uh, to see josh get that deep make a run at it and chase get the win but all in all uh you know i got to run adam davis twice i got to run edmund ellison twice i ran caleb ellison i ran lucas walker i mean it was just great footbreaker after great footbreaker and i thoroughly enjoyed being in the lanes with those guys and staging with them and battling with them. It was really cool and I uh, can't wait to do it again sometime soon. Next opportunity I get to, to go swap feet, Luke. Yeah, good stuff. How did, how did those, how did those matchups work out for you? Well, um, there were some good ones and some not so good ones. Um, some were more gooder than others. Uh, I, I really, I, I whooped up on Adam. I, I had him one round on, uh, on Saturday and I whooped him real good. Uh, I was three take three on him. So, you know, that was a, that was a run. Obviously he couldn't beat, <clears throat> but somehow his win light came on. Uh, I, uh, <laughs> I, ain't really, I don't know if you heard me, but I was three take three Luke. Uh, so there's no way he beats that. But uh, apparently there was a way to beat it, and that's lay down two total, perfect, dead two. And Adam <laughs> did that to me, and um, I pretty much just said to heck with everybody from Coleman County. Um, just right there, declared it right there. I'm done with all of them. But I eventually calmed down and took that back later in the in the weekend, and everybody accepted my apology. So we're all good. But yeah, I got me a little bad beat ticket there, Luke. Uh, that is a good one. Was that indicative of the, the runs that you were seeing throughout the weekend? Or, I mean, obviously not that good, but I imagine that that's, that's a pretty cutthroat event from top to bottom. It was fairly cutthroat. There was a lot of really good runs, a lot of talented foot breakers. You, you know, the announcers, uh, just like at, at the events that I'm associated with as a promoter, people think you got to be double O and dead on every time because the announcer makes a big deal out of that. He doesn't make a big deal out of when you're 60 and two above, you know, that kind of just gets said and move on to the next pair. But when it's double O take double O or it's, you know, it's nine pack beats a 10 pack. The announcer gets pretty excited makes a big deal out of that. And that's what sticks in your head. And I heard plenty, plenty of that. So uh, it was a, a very talented field and a lot of great racing. But it was a foot break race. You know, I made some runs that shouldn't have won. And uh, my opponents made some runs that shouldn't have won. So all in all, I'd say it was about like any big money foot break race in terms of the competition. And, um, you know, the again, the, the talent rose to the top, as it always does with a, that list of winners that I mentioned. Great event. Really good time. It was the hottest 70 degrees I've ever felt in my life. Um, I don't, the back of my neck feels like somebody um, cleaned it with a wire brush, like not like, not like with their hand, like with a drill. 
So I'm burnt up. I'm struggling. <laughs> I haven't slept. Uh, I didn't, uh, I didn't get much rest and, um, you know, I got a couple hours here podcast. So if I, if I fade at the end, I think everybody will understand why and forgive me, but all in all, I had a blast. Loved the, loved the swapping feet. And, um, you know, I had a pretty decent spot on the tree, Luke. Uh, again, I shared like with it. you, I shared with you pre-show, uh, I made 26 runs over the weekend through 22 of them. I, I knew that I was hitting it good. And this, this is not braggadocious by any means. It, it's just, you know, I, I felt like I, I wanted to know what my average was on my green lights and it was 17 through 22 runs. And I think it hung around there. It might've got creeped up to about a 20 when I add the others in after that, because I didn't hit it as great as I wanted to those last few runs. But overall, I think I competed well and, uh, and I made myself definitely want to, to get back out there the next opportunity I get at a big money foot break race and, and do battle with those guys just to make sure it wasn't a fluke this weekend. My experience in recent years, and I, I'm about like you, I don't, I don't do much, much bottom hole racing in general, much less pure foot breaking anymore. But my experience has been like, man, that looks fun. And then I go and they beat the tar out of me. And I'm like, that wasn't as fun as I looked. But. <laughs> Which is exactly what I anticipated. You know, I really had, <laughs> I just told everybody I was pretty much going to go down there and, and get my head caved in and it was going to be done. But uh, I actually felt competitive and, you know, I raced some great racers and, and made them earn it when they beat me. And I, I got around them a couple of times, too. So uh, all in all, it was uh, it brought back some old memories and it was like it used to be. You know, I was I was pretty excited and um, I, I don't pull in the lanes very well. Obviously, I don't know if you heard the list of racers that I raced and there were other great ones that I raced as well. I, I ended up racing Larry Sagan. Uh, late on Sunday, he beat me at 11 cars and went on to win the race. So I got in the way of some really good performances, but uh, I had a few myself. So overall, um, just um, kind of got back to where I where I cut my teeth and, and who I used to be and who I want to be again. So for a 50 year old guy that hadn't uh, competed on that stage in quite some time, I was really proud of myself and can't wait to get back out there and do it again. Next opportunity I get, I'm going to hit me another good foot brake race. Maybe turn on a wind light or two more. I'm curious if you got the same outlook on this as I do, because like you, I assume there was a time when I felt like I was a pretty good foot brake racer, right? And I don't know necessarily, I don't do it a whole lot, because you don't do it a whole lot, but I don't know that I've necessarily gotten worse. I just hadn't gotten better. And everybody else got way better from when I used to do it a lot. Would you agree? Is that is that a fair uh, characterization of the way that this has progressed? I'd say that's absolutely the case. Definitely fair. Um, you know, I again, I might have been a little better than I was on average this weekend, better than I was back in the day, actually. And but right. it, I was just average out there anymore because everybody you know, cars are faster. They're on alcohol. Converters are so good. Suspension so good. People can actually leave on the bottom bulb now. You don't, you don't have to guess at it anymore. So you can see it and hit it and you're fine. And that's, uh, that's where foot braking is. And, you know, it's made it a lot tougher out there for sure, but it definitely has made it a lot more fun. Uh, I'm going to roll back the calendar one week. Um, 
and we're, we've got a, a handful of big events to, to touch on. Obviously, the, the Gator Nationals transpired since we last recorded, uh, as well as the, I think it was the same weekend, the, the SF, no, sorry. Yeah, same weekend. The SFG uh, event in Bradenton, we'll touch on that briefly as well. I was on the other country, obviously, in uh, Tucson, Arizona, for the KNN Southwest Showdown, which we previewed a little bit uh, a couple of weeks ago. On the top ball, it was three 10 granders, a 15 grander, and a $50,000 gambler's race. And where I'm going to start off here is actually not the guy that won the most money, but it's by far the best story. I don't know if this spread, Jed, but this was about the wildest thing I've seen in a long time. Tom Bayer won the 15 grander, not the 50 grander, the 15 grander. And in and of itself, that's not a huge surprise. Like Tom Bayer is a heavy hitter, uh, particularly on the left side of the country, right? Uh, driving school instructor, Tom Bayer School of Drag Racing, and, and rightfully so, like the dude gets it done, right? So it's no shock that he won. Sure. Beat Marco Paravalaris in the final. Again, no shock to see those two in the final. The way that this transpired was wild. So I, it was the quarterfinal round. I don't know, seven or eight cars remaining. And I don't remember who Tom Bayer was running, but it was a, a slower uh, door car, I believe. And Bayer, I'm, I'm speculating here because I didn't actually get a chance to talk to Tom, but from the sounds of it, about the gear change, it zinged the motor and popped. I assume it broke an input shaft, right? And his opponent goes a couple thou under. So Bayer gets the win line and he's now in the semifinals. Well, they came back and apparently were working on the motor because it had broken a rocker arm. They didn't realize the broken rocker arm was the result of some other drivetrain failure, right? So they get the, the rocker arm replaced, start the car, and apparently it won't move. So the rule in place, which is a relatively common rule at this point in, in sportsman racing, uh, rule in place from Chris Forsyth was you can, you can hop into a different car as long as, you know, if you break your car, you can't do it if you crash your car, right? That's the old million dollar rule. Um, but it has to be a car that hadn't been on the track that weekend. Well, that's not a problem. If you know Tom Bear, you know, he's got lots of cars. He rents out cars throughout the week. So there were, I think, multiple cars in his trailer that had not been on the track. So he rolls one out for the semifinal round, right? When you think, okay, like, Bayer obviously knows what all of his stuff will run. Like, he'll be close. He's got a chance. But this is not optimal, right? No, nah, absolutely. So... I don't know. Again, I wish I had talked to Tom to actually get like the behind inside baseball whole story. But regardless, he rolls up in the semifinal opposite Wurtz. Wurtz in a, a Corvette Roadster dialed like 520s. And Tom dialed like 518. And I'm in my pit area, which is a, a ways from the racetrack. But they leave and I hear the announcer go, oh my. And then I'm telling you, if Bayer made it to high gear, I'd be surprised before it just started gap, 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 forever. And the announcer about drops the microphone. <laughs> Bayer is like four, ten, ten to be dead on one. He laid down five total, and I mean pumped the gas for 400 feet. <laughs> wow. Comes back around for the final. Now, obviously, has some idea what he can run and wipes the 518 off the dial board and dials like 504. Holy cow. For Marco in the final, where Bayer is perfect and like one of us to win 15 grand. 
Oh my So goodness. I don't know. I don't know. Like I assume he he would know about where that car would run. So I don't really know why he was holding like a tenth and a half. Obviously he didn't. I assume he didn't know he was holding a tenth. And a half. <laughs> I don't know how this all transpired, but from where I sat. It was the damnedest thing I'd ever seen. I'm like, this dude just swapped cars, dialed up two tents, beat the hell out of everybody. Wow. I had a whole newfound respect for Thomas Bayer, and I thought it was awesome to begin with. Yeah, we know Thomas Bayer's a, a, a talented guy and has been for quite some time and, and done his share of winning. But, Luke, what, what I just heard right there just totally destroys the stereotype that we have out here on the East Coast of the, the West Coast racer. You know, those guys, they, they race good, but they just can't hang with the hitters out here. That's freaking – that's talent right there. I mean, you don't do that on accident. That's a guy that knows his way around the racetrack and can compete with anybody. So, very cool story there for, for Bayer. Yeah, 100%. Couldn't agree more. Uh, the big winner – of the week. And this is actually an awesome story as well. I just thought nothing could top what I saw Tom Bayer do. The, the $50,000 winner racer by the name of Tim O'Moore, local racer to Tucson, no stranger to success. I believe he won the ultimate gambler at the, um, at the Vegas Thanksgiving race last year. Um, but Tim O'Moore, not only did he win the 50, the manner in which he went about winning the 50 is like the stuff of legend in, let me see if I can break this down in order this was supposed to be a 128 car field and it got close to that but it was maybe 120 cars total 110 cars total something like that but it was odd numbers like over 64 dragsters and less than 32 door cars less than 32 no box cars and but tim o'more in succession rolled through i don't I, I apologies i don't know who he ran first round the second round he beat my wife jessica third round he beat ryan harem fourth round he beat michael pennington Somewhere in there, he got a bye. We'll say that was fifth round, just for the sake of conversation. Sixth round, he beat Chris Whitfield. Seventh round, he beat Peter Biondo. And then he defeated me in the final round. Like, not to, to put credit on my shoulders, but I don't think, particularly at that event, like you couldn't roll through a who's who that was more than that. He literally beat everybody that would probably be like odds-on favorites to win the race, one by one by one by one. Dude yeah he beat a list of racers that somebody picked and each one of those yeah, was picked by it. somebody to win the race and you could have taken anyone on that list and given them that list and they don't get through it but tim o'more did first and foremost congrats on a 50 grand final loop that's a that's a pretty great accomplishment of your own that you're uh, you know again eating your humble pie and just kind of sliding right by that. But making a 50 grand final on your trip makes your trip worth everything you're doing, not just the memories that you're making, which makes it worth it. But now you got a financial piece that, that uh, allows it to, to be a successful trip as well. So really cool for you. And you still got the spring playing million to go. So that's great stuff, but you're talking about murderers row uh you know peter you obviously whitfield the last three alone is a gauntlet and and he gets through it so tim o'more might have the the most well-earned 50 grand victory in the history of our sport with the list that you just mentioned so congratulations to tim o'more what a great win and certainly the the list of racers that he bested to get that $50,000 check has to make that feel extra, extra special. 
Yeah, if that wasn't enough, Judd, here's a man straight after your heart. In addition to winning the 50, he was final off the bottom on another day of the event. And um, I think he got down to the quarterfinals on the last day. Like, dude was putting on a weekend, putting on a clinic all throughout. Oh my goodness! Yes, Tim O'Moore, even the bottom ball base. Uh, that that right. I don't know. I don't know Tim, but I love him. Tim, congratulations! You might be the best racer in the world, my friend. And given the the list of hitters that Tim O'Moore knocked off, no surprise that his win light came out in the final. If you are even remotely familiar with my $50,000 history, no surprise that Tim O'Moore's win light came out in the final. I am now 0 for 6 50K finals. I don't win those. So you're the opposite I mean, of Gary Williams. I don't win. This is exactly. So you're, the way G-Dub steps to the plate when it's all on the line, I'm somewhere on the other end of the spectrum. Yes. You're, you're Wary <laughs> Gilliams. I'm <laughs> weary something. I would take over six in 50 grand finals, Luke. Give me that. I would be that guy. No problem. <laughs> to get to six of them is pretty damn incredible. Congrats to Tim O'Moore. Uh, the other 10 granders from the weekend, it opened with uh, the aforementioned Peter Biondo. He was there driving Marco Paravalos' car. He won the first 10. Ryan Harum continued his hot streak. Uh, we talked about him a couple of weeks ago when he won the divisional event in Phoenix. He drove that same drag streak to a $10,000 win on that would have been Friday night in Tucson. And then the weekend closed with Dustin Henches, another um, familiar name, uh, West Coast, winning the final 10 grander. There was also uh, Pro ET, bottom bulb class each day, paid five grand a day. Um, I don't have records there other than Tim O'Moore runnered up one day, Chuck Hawk on the last day. Uh, I think um, Sasha Hofer, I think Sasha Hofer won a day. I'm probably screwing that all up. There was junior dragsters there. Um, I didn't pay much attention after first round because that's when we were done in junior dragsters. So sorry. That's all I got. <laughs> so Gary Bear didn't, uh, didn't quite get it done, but uh, again, I'm sure that was a, a great experience being out there with your son and getting to, to race his junior on the West coast, a pretty special environment there for him at such it, an early age. And he'll get his share just like his old man. It was awesome. It was awesome. And, and I don't, I don't want to downplay this at all, but let me just give you a little bit of insight, Jed, and our listeners as to what life is like racing as a family with two young boys. Okay, this is just, this is a 15 minute span. First off, like, let's zoom out a little bit. You know, how, how I've beat the drum and I advocated and I sung Chris Forsyth's praises for combining junior dragsters with the big cars for this event for all the reasons that I've talked about before. That's all awesome and i still 100 feel that way in theory in practice as like the the driver of one crew chief of one dad of one holy hell that's a lot of work <laughs> like everywhere we go it's either juniors or big cars and i can keep up just fine this deal and keep in mind too you just throw gasoline on that fire moving it to tucson arizona because this is bizarre jet like this is i think i told you this off air and the people on this side of the country don't bat an eye at this, but I'm telling you, we left Phoenix, Arizona. The converter in my Corvette went to 6,800 RPM, about where I want it, right? If any, maybe a touch type, but about where I want it. We drive 100 miles, 100, not 500, 100 miles. And I didn't just drive up a mountain. 
100 miles. That same converter behind that same motor, 6,300 at Tucson. Holy cow. You won't hardly leave the starting line. Yeah. So <laughs> between racing and, and going just deep enough each day that like you're in late at night and then changing converters a couple of times at midnight, right? Trying to get something that get the same thing to go to racetrack combined with the 8 a.m junior dragster call the next day for four days uh i mean dragon jed all i had anyway back to my story <laughs> so this is this is all literally within a 15 minute span on sunday i am taking gary to the staging lanes with his junior dragster jess is up running the the re-entry ramp and as we're turning into the staging lanes my phone rings and I reach down and it's my wife. And I'm like, oh, this is not a good sign. She's supposed to be like on the starting line, right? What's up? I'm broke. They just pushed me off. Hmm. All right. I'll be there in a minute. So right up to the staging lanes, get Gary halfway situated, walk across to where they've pushed my wife off the racetrack. I'm like, what happened? She says, uh, I did my burnout. It died. It spins over fine. Won't start. I pop the distributor cap off, rotor's still on it, cap looks good. As I put it back on, I'm like, wait, something's missing. The coil wire is just dangling, not hooked to the coil. Huh. That's the problem, right? Pop that back on. I said, babe, make sure it starts. It starts. She drives back to the pits. And I walk back to the junior dragster and I'm thinking, and it's weird, like the coil wires don't just fall off, right? <laughs> so I'm, I'm, I'm piecing this together. Well, Jess gets back to the pits. And uh, we, th I'll expand this a little bit. We, we, we all get back to the pits. And um, my youngest son, Jack, says, mommy car broke? Yeah, mommy's car broke. He walks unprompted, walks directly to the quarter and says, is this what broke? Yeah. Yeah, that's hey, what You know broke. that. <laughs> did, did you take that off, Jack? Uh-huh. Why? I want to see what was in it. So my man took it off, looked and saw what was in it, and then apparently at some point realized this is pretty important and stuck it back on. But obviously the three-year-old muscles didn't actually like click it on. So it stuck on just enough to drive all the way to the staging lanes and make the burnout, at which point it obviously shook loose. No oh, my goodness. Okay. So literally, this is, I mean, we're in the staging lanes for round one junior director, right? Literally. 10 minutes after this fiasco, Gary stages up for first round. He's running a little girl that he ran first round the day before. And uh, they leave the starting line. And it's obvious my man has got a smooth 10th on the tree. Like, we are in good shape. He goes out about 200 feet and it just falls on its face. And then I hear it like gain throttle again. But he's a second over. And I'm just ready to pull my hair out. Of these freaking junior dragsters. You know how this works, right? And I'm like, what have I done? Like, how on earth did it just run out of fuel? You know, what happened? So I'm beating myself up. And at this point, I don't know the culprit of the coil wire. So I'm riding down the return road going, I got two people trying to race here. I can't even give them a car to go down a racetrack, right? What the hell? I'm crew chief of the year right here, right? I get down to my man. I said, Gary, what happened? And I'm fully expecting him to just dog cuss his race car, right? He looks at me. He says, Daddy, I got confused. I, I thought I... I thought I, I thought I red lighted or I went when I wasn't supposed to. So I just let off the gas. 
And then I realized, oh, wait, I can still win. And I got back on it. So far in front, it was uncomfortable. So, <laughs> yeah, that was our, uh, our Sunday. So, good times. Good times. That is the best of times. Uh, it's it's the, certainly some challenges the Jag- in there. <laughs> the coal wire thing, I mean, we will laugh about that for 20 years, right? Like, it wasn't particularly funny in the moment. But now we're moving from it. I'm like, ah, that, that's pretty good, right? So, that's yeah, a good stuff. <laughs> oh jack <laughs> curious jack crew chief jack crew chief jack he's got us tuned up oh, uh, all right story. so a handful of other events that uh that we were not in attendance for but are probably worth noting we've got um uh, 10g at bg we've got the gator nationals sfg at bradenton is there anything i'm missing jed where do you start Oh, I think um, I think that's the list of the most significant events for sure. Uh, let's go Gator Nationals, Luke. That was a that was an interesting event for the sportsman guys. You know that the, I don't know if people cool. saw much of that footage. Oh my gosh! You know when it rains at Gainesville and it 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 rains for a day or so, it gets bad. But when it rains for three days, it gets miserable. And that was a sloppy, sloppy mess down there. So any sportsman racer that that was willing to stick around and sit through that and then wait to compete on Monday, kudos to you first and foremost. And then, <laughs> you know, there were obviously some great performances on Monday uh, from from some sportsman racers that that collected a Wally. Jed, to your point, I have been to the Gator Nationals one time and I I want to say it was like 2010 and it was like the complete this was the complete replay of that event and i swear never again i will never sit through that it never i will not participate in that i changed a flex plate in brian robinson's stock eliminator car that i was driving on a sheet of plywood in four inches of mud ah. miserable miserable just yeah so, and the way it all played out, like we ran, I actually think that year we made, if I'm not mistaken, we got a one time trial for everybody Sunday morning, and then they ran out all the pros and we ran the event to completion Sunday night, which actually was a cool format. I'm like, man, if they would just get it to where you didn't have to show up till Saturday, this would be awesome. Um, <laughs> but it was the point where I think it was Friday, like it was a beautiful day Friday but no sportsman cars went down the racetrack because we literally could not get out of our pit area. Yep. It was that much. Yeah. I've seen some and of those Gator so, yeah. Nationals. Uh, the, you know, I competed in the Gators once. Luke, so That's right. That's right. Yes, you did. And, and the, the, guy, that, the guy that tech my car said the same thing you said, never, I'll never come back. <laughs> 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 Let's talk about some of these winners, Luke. <laughs> Uh, obviously um you know again those guys waited to compete on uh on monday but anything that anything stood out for you i mean obviously there was a pretty special final round in the super comp category yeah i'm gonna be a bit of a homer like you are that was that was the story of the event for me personally uh to see who makes the third get the win in super comp over Sherman Adcock Jr. in uh, an all-team Glenn Smith final. Uh, Hugh, for all the success that he's had, uh, 
former superstock national champion, unbelievable bracket racer, top ball, bottom ball, long track, short track, like you name it, he can do it all. Like he was the, he was Alabama's utility driver, right? And the, uh, in the dream team challenge and rightfully so. With that yeah. said, like the all state, a comp- yeah, all state. Yeah. You know, and the, he was part of the team that couldn't win. Luke, I don't know if, if you remember that story, but he was part of the team that couldn't win, but they still did. Really? Mm, yeah we're, we'll tell we'll that on we're... another podcast <laughs> they're from alabama it's right between mississippi and georgia yeah. but no big deal go ahead and continue with your story no, i was just to say for all of his success i don't think hugh has racked up like a huge trophy case of national event win and i believe this yeah. was his first super comp so pretty special stuff yeah I, you're spot on with that uh certainly hasn't given himself many opportunities to do that in the past right probably 15 years I, I would say his superstock world championship was somewhere along those along that 15 16 years ago range so um and you are he, making me feel old again but i think you're right he's been raising uh his kids and sending them to college and everything else and running the business so uh he's been around the house um obviously uh, kind of empty nesting a little bit these days and some more opportunity to go race and Glenn Smith being the the guy he is has uh, has given those guys really good equipment and the the means to go do all they want to do when they want to do and Hugh and Sherm make the best of it uh, an all Glenn Smith final between two extremely good if not best of friends had to be pretty darn special so congrats to Hugh and Sherman as well on that super cop final that's uh that's really cool. I'm sure experience to get to do, and especially when you hang around all the way to Monday. And, you know, it's one of those things you, you just have to make the final loop when you hang around till Monday, you got to make the final or that was one of the worst decisions of your life of your life. And both of those guys <laughs> hang around and make the final ladder works out and everything. That's, that's pretty darn cool. Yeah. I think, uh, I think the other thing that really caught my eye from <laughs> Gainesville was, uh, Pete Dallo kind of picking up where he left off in 2021, uh, getting the super stock victory. And I'll just, I don't know, obviously I'm not privy to, to Pete Dagnolo's logbook, but just looking at the box score, I'm going to say he was 002 in round one and didn't mean to be. And, thought ooh, okay let's back this up just a little bit and then from there on he makes five consecutive runs no better than 18 and no worse than 29 to hoist the super stock wally that that's the pete dagnolo that i'm here for yeah that's a, a really really good box score and again i you know i have to feel like there's just added pressure when you've stuck around till monday and you've set through all that so you're probably putting a little extra pressure on yourself and Pete goes out and performs like that with that kind of narrow window for hitting the bottom bulb. Um, his opponent was no slouch either. Billy Ryan with a really good box score himself, 34 being the worst light and 17 being the best. I mean, a 17 thousandths window and a very comfortable window at that where you're hitting the tree well, not missing it, but not killing it. And uh, that typically is going to be good enough for the win. Then you light it up 34 and one above in the final should be good enough. And, PDD slides in by a thou and gets the Wally on you. So uh, really good final round on top of everything else. No surprise there for Diagnolo to collect himself another Wally and another Winlight. Jeff Strickland was your winner in Stock Eliminator. And I may be mistaken, but I believe 
the last time that Jeff Strickland won the Gator Nationals, he won two classes in one day, top drag extra and stock liminary. Later that year, he would go on to win world championships in two classes. So I don't know if that's a precursor. I don't know if I'm ready to call the shot just yet, but little strip starting as well as you could start with the Gator Nationals win in Stock Eliminator over Ron Urquhart. Yeah, Ron with a really good box score himself, uh, hit the tree exceptionally well, 13 being the best, 29 being the worst outside of a just to take the tree by run in uh, round number five. But uh, Jeff Strickland, you know, performing well in that Cagnazzi, Copo, Camaro, uh, 33 on the tree, nine thou under, 144 miles an hour, getting after it in a stock eliminator car. My goodness, what is stock come to now, Luke? I mean, these guys are putting up crazy numbers in these cars and uh, certainly uh, makes them very difficult to, to race against if you're in any kind of old school stocker because those cars are coming hard. Jeff making the best of that again, as you mentioned, uh, a guy that's done plenty of winning in, in his time and some really special days and even two championships in one year that we've talked about on the show. So great job by Jeff. And uh, I know you know this, Luke, but I, I can't let it go without mentioning he's from Red Bay, Alabama. Of course he is. I mean, you guys have to claim him. He can hit a golf ball to the state of Mississippi, but he is in Alabama. You're right. <laughs> yeah, that is true. That is couple true. Of, uh, a couple of Division Four aces made the trip to uh, to Gainesville and captured the trophies in the fast brackets. That's Alan Firestone in top sportsman, Wayne Landry in top dragster. Um, and then Supergas, uh, the hardware went back with Kevin McNichol. And if I'm not mistaken, that's uh, – McNichol is – is more known as a super street racer and just judging by the mile per hour in the final i'm going to assume that he was in his super street car you don't see that every day 991 at 139 to uh, to win the gator nationals that's always good stuff no you don't see that every day and and again this is no knock on these competitors i'm certainly not picking at them but you do you don't typically see both uh racers in the final round of uh, of super gas being in the 50s uh, one was 50 one was 55 so when that happens, Luke, do you attribute that to maybe the tree was just a little quick? Uh, I mean, that's that's pretty odd and rare that you'll see both racers light it up along those lines. You know, Jed, I don't have any great explanation for this, but just looking through the box scores of each class and producer Mark listed the, the box scores of each of the finalists, like with little exception, everybody's worst light was the final. So. I know that Gainesville can be really tricked um, with sunlight behind the tree in the morning, but these finals would have been run in the evening. So I don't, I wasn't there, obviously. I don't have a great ex explanation, but my guess is that there's something going on that obviously affected every category because none of the final round lights were commensurate with what any of those competitors had done coming in. You know, that's a really good point, and uh, I would say there's probably something to what you just said. Uh, obviously, light was probably impacting that, and something caused it nonetheless for, for all of those guys. So I imagine they were all dealing with some different kind of conditions than they're used to. Nonetheless, great job by those competitors, and, uh, and certainly uh, congrats for, for battling through what you battled through. That was an event that I think a lot of people uh, loaded up or never unloaded and ended up whether they got pulled out, pushed out, or just was able to get out under their own power, finally gave up and left. 
And for those of you that stuck around on Monday enough to have, you know, five and six round races, good for you. Congrats. And uh, certainly those were well earned and deserved wallies and wins on your part. Luke, uh, staying in Florida, uh, the SFG visited Bradenton Motorsports Park where they had, uh, I think, some weather challenges and had to combine. I think it was 325 Granders and had to combine uh, one of those and make it a 50K and then a 25K on the other race. But it uh, looked like they had a good event down there. Yeah, the, that main event, that 50 Granders, won by Brian Booze, got the win over Travis Logan. And again, wasn't there, but from what I could gather of this, just kind of glancing through the run sheets and what I'd read on social media, Brian Booz's 50 grand win kind of similar to Tim Moore's in that um, not one of the, the necessarily big names, not necessarily the, the most expensive car in the pits. Right. And just repeatedly knocked off hitter after hitter, name after name, um, you know, perhaps hundred thousand dollar race car after hundred thousand dollar race car to get that win. and stories like that. Like they are, I think it's redundant to say, Jed, that they are good for our sport. Like, that's kind of obvious. It's not, I don't even know that it's necessarily not the norm today. I think we just pen, tend to pay more attention to the names that we know. But this stuff coming, like, just having watched it in Tucson and obviously being on the, 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 the receiving end of it, so to speak, in the final, like, that part wasn't great. But when a... I don't, I, I don't want to speak out of turn on Tim O'Moore's dragster. Like it's a solid 1990 something dragster going four nineties, right? Like it's, it's a very much a budget bracket car by today's standards. I, and I don't even know firsthand what Brian Booz is driving, but I know it's, it's not, you know, the, the latest, greatest, newest stuff, right? To see racers like that have success at that level is just a reminder to all of us that I don't know, like this kind of got hammered home to me out West. Like, we, uh, it, it was, it, it was obvious to me how much we have let the costs get out of hand in the name of being more competitive. And I'm guilty as anyone, right? Like I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm throwing my hat into that same ring, but to realize that like, that's not what makes a winner, right? Making good runs, regardless of whether or not you've got a car that looks like it should make the best runs that's where it's at right and it doesn't matter if you're doing that going 420 or 720 and it doesn't matter if you're doing that in a $150,000 race car or a $15,000 race car the object is the same and having the the fast car or the expensive car doesn't necessarily um I, I would say make it easier maybe it does make it easier but it certainly does not guarantee victory it doesn't guarantee it, Luke, but if you give me the choice, I'm going to pick that fast car and that expensive car because I know it's got the more gooder stuff on it and it's more right. likely to repeat, but it, it, does, but it, it, it does peg the cool meter when somebody takes a piece that's got a little more experience and a little less bling and they, they just show you that you can, you know, you can go Chet Dragon on them and you can get it yes, done and whatever you're competing in if you can drive it drive it and go out there and get it done i met ben dover the infamous ben dover that made the video last year at the footbreak 150 against nick hastings driving a 13 second uh, falcon futura uh, met ben this weekend at the the footbreak 150 and 
you know, he said the same thing. It's just really cool. You can come out here and compete with anything. You know, it might not be as good as the 1432 wearing alcohol breathing 580 car, but it certainly uh, is something that you can go out and have fun in and compete in. So anybody, Brian Boos, Ben Dover, whomever, Chet Dragon, anybody doing that, keep doing it and prove to everybody that you can go out and win with Again, equipment that doesn't have the latest, greatest bling and, and right. you know, popular the, fad parts. The instant, the instant that we lose that perception, right, that a that a local racer in solid equipment, not like the trick of the week equipment, the minute that we lose that perception that that racer can compete at that level is when that level ceases to exist. Like those races have to support those races. So it's great well to see racers like that win um i guess that's the, the the long that's the point that i think we took a long-winded route to making um okay ng at, at oh i'm sorry i missed one day at bradenton the, the first day at bradenton was um johnny brandon over caroline mccarty i think that was before the rain set in i think that was 25 grander as advertised um a guy and a girl that are no stranger to uh, to late rounds. I think uh, it's, it seems like I'd read somewhere where this was kind of a breakthrough for for Donnie because he'd been close a bunch and not actually you know got to hold the trophy and, and the big check at the end of the day. But anybody that has raced with that crew, that's no surprise to see Donnie Brandon in the horse circle. The dude makes really good runs, and Carolyn McCarty just keeps getting there. Like it's seemingly, I want to say every weekend, but multiple times a year, driving that Rambler wagon to the money round. Yeah, great point. John Brandon, John Yacht. Uh, I think that was John Yacht that got the win. And uh, he is, you know, people that know him know him as John Yacht. And the younger one's John Boat. But um, really cool win for him. The, the winner circle picture, I don't know if you got to see it on social media, but it just showed, you know, how well liked he is. This is a, a guy that people just really enjoy being around. Just a super guy, always smiling whether things are going his way or whether they aren't. And to get that 25K win was pretty dang special, especially there at Bradenton. He doesn't travel a whole bunch, so got to compete in a huge event at his own track, home track, excuse me, and, and get the win over a red-hot Caroline McCarty. Caroline, my goodness. She just keeps, like you said, over and over and over, going to big final rounds, winning her share, maybe coming up short in some of them, but still great days at the racetrack. And she is a very, very, very young talent. So she's going to be uh, putting her name on big checks for many, many years to come. So great final round for them. And certainly congrats to Brian Boos and Travis Logan for that 50K final and, and Boos getting the win there. But good event overall at Bradenton, Luke. And uh, that starts out the SFG season there where uh, there'll be plenty more to come from those guys looks like they got some good stuff on the schedule this year i didn't want to briefly on tenji it'd be just because not uh, the hugest money race on the calendar but i feel like it kind of is a is a seminal point on the calendar it, i feel like it kind of marks the beginning of the season in the midwest uh, got a lot of snowbirds, a lot of Ohio, Illinois, even Wisconsin, Minnesota racers kind of converge on Beach Bend Raceway Park to, to kind of kick off the season. Just briefly, the three winners there, Corey Glidewell, who is uh, off to a, a hot start this season. I think we mentioned his name a couple episodes ago uh, for making a final round out in Gulfport. That was in his Toyota truck. 
this was in the fast top sporting cutlass. I get a 10 grand win on Friday. Eric Griffith, a young man that we talked a lot about a year ago. Uh, for good reason. Eric Griffith was one of the hottest drivers in our sport. I think he, uh, I think he made our top 25, right? Um, he continues here, did you? that. Yeah. I, he continues that, uh, that momentum into 2022 Drives that familiar S 10 to the $10,000 victory on Saturday. Then the weekend ended with Taylor cook getting the $10,000 win on Sunday in his station. wagon. anything to add there? Uh, no, it was uh, good to see. Um, I think Corey was, you know, had plans to take the the truck, and something happened to the engine, and had a mad dash to put the Cutlass together to even have an opportunity to go run it, and then goes and gets the win. That was pretty cool to see that, and he thanked his dad and some others for thrashing with him to get that opportunity to go race. And uh, I don't know which race it happened. But uh, I did see that Jake Hodge took his future father-in-law, Timmy Elliott's Camaro, to a final round, got a runner-up. And, and I mentioned that because uh, Jake's a friend and certainly happy for him to, to get that final round. But, you know, just, again, kind of red hot. You know, Jake started with the Great American Guaranteed Million, getting down to the semifinals and, and having a life-changing day there. And then he's just continued to turn on wind lights no matter what he's been driving. So, Hopefully, uh, Jake, keep that momentum going. But overall, Luke, I think those guys had weather challenges and maybe even some that felt like the event couldn't happen because of the forecast. But the guys at Bowling Green stuck to it, did everything they could, and uh, and got that event run to completion and got a lot of winners. One little tidbit that we didn't talk about pre-show, and I, I should have mentioned it. I don't know if you've heard, but, uh, but uh, Greg Kaufman, uh, had a, a little incident in the pits, unfortunately, and uh, it it kind of beat him up a little bit. The dragster uh, jumped in gear while while warming up, and something was going on with the shifter cable there, and something crazy happened, and it it got on top of him and kind of whipped him down on the ground. He hit the back of his head, Luke, and and knocked him out for a little while, and. Uh, he had to go when he finally come to, he was alert and aware of where he was and who he was. So that was a great thing because those things can turn very, very bad, very, very quickly. And uh, he did have to go to the hospital and get eight staples, I think, in the back of his head. But all in all, sounds like he's doing well and, uh, and going to be OK. Glad to hear that. I had no idea. Yeah, that's that. Uh, glad to hear Greg doing OK. That that's. That sounds like a story that could have ended much, much, uh, much worse. Yeah, definitely, definitely. It's a, it was a very, very fortunate, very lucky thing. All right, Jed. So I think we hit all the high points. We hit, we did our job here on the Sportsman Dragration Podcast. It's at this point in the show that we're going to have a little fun. This is one of our kind of nutty annual traditions. We've done this several times at this point, right? So yes. If you don't want to have a little, if you don't like fun, you can turn off now. If you don't have like some type of minor following of college basketball, you might want to tune out now because this is kind of an inside joke thing, right? But this is something that we do year in and year out. If you follow the NCAA men's basketball tournament, you know that we're down to the Sweet 16. In fact, as you listen to this, uh, we'll probably be some midway through the round of series. 
season here on the Sports from Dragons. We have a little bit of fun with our brackets. It's related to each team remaining in the bracket. In the past, we've uh, we've, <laughs> we've had some fun with this. We did it on uh, like, you know, the, the racer that, uh, you know, has this excuse for losing, right? Like, a lot of fun with that. I think that was the, the thing that kicked us off. We had uh, iconic race cars of the past um, tied to, to NCAA tournament games at some point. So the idea that we came up with for this year was to link each team remaining in the Sweet 16 to 16 of the most, let's just say, creative ideas that came to the top of our minds in sportsman drag racing history. Some of these ideas were good. They've stuck with us. Some of these ideas were not so good, but they were creative, right? Some of these ideas didn't stick, but we admire the creativity, the thought process that goes into them. So with that in mind, our 16 most creative ideas in sports and drag racing history linked to the 16 remaining. All right, so we've, we've checked all the boxes. We did all the serious stuff that, you know, we feel obligated to do now, Jed. It's time to have a little bit of fun. Yeah, good stuff. We, loyal listeners, hashtag loyal listeners will know that this is a bit of a tradition. We do this each year around the NCAA men's basketball tournament. Jed and I are fans of the college hoop and obviously uh, fans of sportsman drag racing. We like to mix the two together. So let me just say like all the seriousness for this episode is done. If you don't like fun, you can turn off now. If you don't follow college basketball on some level you might not get into this like you might be lost this is very much kind of an inside joke um but each year we take some section of the tournament uh, right now we're down to the sweet 16 or as we record this we're down to the sweet 16 and we are going to connect each of the 16 remaining teams in the ncaa tournament to our 16 favorite or what we deem as the 16 most creative ideas in the history of sportsman drag racing. Now, these are the first thing that came to mind. I'm sure that we're missing some, but when we say creative idea, we don't necessarily mean great idea. Like some of the ideas that, we, uh, that, that we're gonna touch on, they stuck, right? And we look back on us as like, wow, that was really innovative and game-changing. Like our, our sport is different today for someone having that idea however many years ago. And some of the ideas, are, yeah, they didn't really stick, right? But that's not the point. We, the point is we admire the creativity that goes into it, the ingenuity, if you will, to come up with these potentially groundbreaking next new things. So with that in mind, we're going to tie one creative idea in sportsman drag racing history to the remaining teams in the bracket. And then as this plays out, we'll kind of keep up with it and we'll see what creative ideas, perhaps the best idea in the history of sports and drag racing as decided by the team that we um, link it to <laughs> that wins the NCAA tournament, because, you know, that sounds scientific. Yeah. There's certain teams that, that should, uh, you know, general opinion that should be winning and, and be the most competitive or have the best opportunity to win. And there are some gadgets or ideas <laughs> that are tied to them that kind of flow with that same thought. So uh, this is, this is if listeners, it's really time to focus in here and listen and, and pay attention <laughs> to this, whether you like basketball or not, because this is really more about 
drag racing, bracket racing ideas than it is about basketball. We're just tying the two together. So don't leave us. Listen, this is about to get really, really good. All right. So our Sweet 16, if you are looking, if you have the NCAA men's basketball bracket in front of you, we're going to start in the upper left corner with the overall number one seed, the Gonzaga Bulldogs. And Big Jed, we are going to link the Gonzaga Bulldogs, the overall number one seed, to what we think is probably the, the, the low-hanging fruit, the most likely, like, that, that invention changed the game in sportsman drag racing. And that, quite obviously, is the delay box. Yeah, the Gonzaga the, Bulldogs are the delay box. Yeah, the Gonzaga Bulldogs have, have you know, I've been playing basketball for a long time, but here in the last little while, they've kind of come on and, and changed the game themselves and how it's played and how it's viewed, much like the delay box did and from its inception. And there's been a few different versions of it, but by and large, uh, the delay box has been an amazing invention and thought within our uh, sport that that's changed it forever luke who do we attribute the the original invention of the delay box to like is that icama like the first delay boxes that i saw were like you remember the bf electronics boxes that had the nine volt yeah. battery on the top yes the first delay box that i ever owned and i'm, I'm not quite old enough for this right but i bought it at a swap meet because it was all i could afford it was a mazir you know the people that make starters and water pumps today it was a Mazir delay box and it only had three digits. Oh, wow. Yeah, there was yeah. no seconds. Like, I think it was developed to like cleanly hit the bottom. But okay. it was, I, I had a, I had a three digit Mazir. I haven't seen one of those, uh, you know, and that's a, that's a hot topic for debate. Who do we, uh, who do we give credit to for that? Uh, some will say it was Sam Biondo that, that yeah. thought of it, but uh, someone, uh, got word of his idea and and put the money to it and the production to it and produced it. So uh, that it could have been Icama, it could have been Sam Biondo, but it was definitely a legend in the sport. I think uh, no matter who it was, and uh, I think uh, whoever it was. Thank you. Probably, yeah, right. I think Bob Phillips has been credited with it at some point too. He was the proprietor yep. of ACD. Um, so yeah, and I guess like broader picture, you said thank you. I feel like there's a lot there. I don't know. Now it's probably a shrinking segment of racers that would say that the delay box is the worst thing that ever happened to sportsman drag racing. I would actually pretty strongly disagree. Where, where do you stand on that? No, I think it's a, one of the best inventions, if not the best that's ever been put in our sport. And the reason is I think without it, you, you, your great racers just dominate much like you hear the 10, 12, 13, 15 week runs that people had, back in the the 70s and 80s but now it has leveled the playing field although it's made it much more challenging to win it's made people like me much more gooder than we really are so i think that sport has i mean that uh, invention has changed our sport and allowed it to become what it is today where you can win life changing money i don't think that happens without uh something like a delay box 100% like if if you take a group of people that are complaining that the delay box is the worst thing that ever happened to sportsman drag racing if Scotty Richardson and David Rampey and Peter Biondo and Anthony Bertozzi are part of that group I, I would listen because those guys would dominate more than they 
have over the course of the last 30 years, which is kind of difficult to fathom. Did you imagine what racers like that would have done if everybody had to start from that playing field? No delay boxes. The thing, and, and it's a double-edged sword, and, and I think we visited on this at some point in the past, the, the negative to the invention of delay boxes, it kind of opened Pandora's box. And I feel like the electronic side and just technology in general has escalated the costs of racing. That was probably inevitable, whether somebody came up with a delay box or not, right? Um, but the, the positive side of it is that it did increase parity at such a level. Like, I, I think it's very fair to say there is no way possible that we see the tremendous growth in big dollar bracket racing that we've seen. We could, we could focus in on the last decade because that's when it's really hit like the, the forefront. But uh, you take that back over the course of the last 30 years, there is no way that that happens without the delay box because people would very quickly realize, hey, um, I go to the racetrack and there's a hundred people there and it's like the same five guys that are the last five in every single week. And people would begin to realize, like, I don't have a chance. Well, the Lightbox gave everybody yes. a chance, right? And, and there's no way you could fathom having fields of four, five, six, seven hundred race cars if every one of them didn't feel like they had a chance. And you take the Lightboxes out of that, and you don't, you don't have that. You better believe it. Like very well said. People are exiting our sport at an alarming rate as it is because of many reasons, the cost and how challenging it is to win, how much time it takes and so on and so forth. Take the delay box out and, and see how fast people exit. Uh, it, it would be, it would be devastating. So I agree wholeheartedly. Luke, they're facing <laughs> the Arkansas Razorbacks. That's right. So obviously Gonzaga is a heavy favorite in that Sweet 16 matchup. So the delay box would be favored over we're going to have Arkansas represent – I think you came up with this one, Jed. The, this isn't necessarily an invention specific to sportsman drag racing, but it's something that trickled into the sport, and at one point, you had to have these. Yes, you had to have the blue blockers, uh, the, the, <laughs> the amber sunglasses. Now, this is in incandescent light days, and, you know, that – so – at nighttime, you got way better in the incandescent days. Much more better. And in LED light times, you get a little more worser than the daylight. So these blue blockers were supposed to make things consistent night to day because the last thing you could do was add numbers to the box. You just couldn't allow yourself to do that. And when it got nighttime, if you wore these all day, you was you were very consistent even into the night. So it was <laughs> it was very commonplace, Luke, to see these guys wearing the amber sunglasses. The best part of this was that it made otherwise fashion conscious men and women wear open face helmets with full wraparound amber sunglasses in the yes. middle of the night. Yes, it did. It absolutely <laughs> did. And nobody even questioned it. They're like, man, they, they just got it figured out. Look at those glasses. Making Look at them, those glasses. That's making the them awesome. All right. So, so, so <laughs> the Arkansas Razorbacks, the must bus representing blue blocker sunglasses. That actually brings to mind 
I, I don't even know if I've got the name right on this, but obviously, like even to this day, the ambient light, if you will, on the Christmas tree, that's a factor. It's not near as much of a factor with LEDs as it was on the old incandescents. And, and those of you like under the age of, I don't know, 35 are like, what are you talking about? Like we didn't always have the same bulbs in the Christmas tree. They're in the Christmas tree now. They, you used to could see them warm up, right? <laughs> they give you a little warning, they're coming. Um, it's no longer the case with LED bulbs and that, that ambient light, if you will, it played a big role on the old incandescent bulbs. So I don't know who came up with this. I don't remember the name of it. I want to say it was called true light. Jed. These were actually in the JEGS catalog back in the day. It was this little like two inch by two inch square thing that you could just mount on the dashboard and it gave a measurement of the light available. And it was like, you know, a sliding scale. It had like 10 lights on it or something like that. Or maybe it was a, maybe it was a dial, but you were supposed to adjust the delay box accordingly. And I think it even had like the thousandths of a second on the dial and like, oh, it's really bright. You should pull 15 thousandths. And we all just like, oh yeah, to the true light says it's 15 thousand. I should pull 15 thousandths. That was a thing. I, I do not remember back. true light. I had with, do you remember the old bracket racing USA? They did a feature on Rusty Greer and the Raceaholic Vega in like 91. I don't know why you would remember that, but I can't forget it. I was the kid. I was so infatuated with every gadget, right? And Rusty Greer's Vega had like two of everything you could buy. It had delay boxes, wired to delay box testers, wired to burnout time. It had all kinds of stuff but it had a true light sensor. And I'm like, I gotta have one of those. That's what it's at. Wow. No, I never read anything like that at, at that point. I mean, I was just six, seven, eight years into racing and uh, I didn't know Producer there was Mark's anywhere else. Producer Mark says, I just typed in, I have that magazine and I remember that article. Bracket Racing <laughs> USA, the old Bruiser. Yes. Dale Wilson, yes. Late, great Dale Wilson. But no, I thought Laster Mountain was the only place to race on earth in 1991. So I wouldn't have read any of that or known any about that. <laughs> Good stuff. All right. The winner of that Gonzaga, Arkansas, or should we say delay box versus blue blocker game in the sweet 16 will take on the winner of Texas tech and Duke. One of the, uh, the most anticipated matchups of the sweet 16 Texas tech, big Jed will be representing digital dial boards. Oh yeah, I love digital dial boards, and uh, Texas Tech's very fitting for them. That's a, it's kind of the new, new thing, new hot thing that everybody needs to to have. So, digital dial boards and Texas Tech go together like cereal and milk. Luke, this is <laughs> this is a great match right here for them. Here's the thing with the digital dial boards: like, why is this like just gaining popularity in the last decade? Since we had delay boxes. Wouldn't it have made sense? Like you had to, you've always had to check, like, is the number on the window match the number on the scoreboard? And does the number on the scoreboard match the number in the delay box? You could eliminate one of those variables. The, the, <laughs> yeah. the number on the scoreboard, the number on the dial board has to match the number in the delay box. Like there's one last thing that can go wrong. Why did we not think of this? That's I, a great question. And I specifically remember this because you just, you have to know Jeff Heffler, right? So I'm, I'm riding home from Temple Academy Dragway with Jeff Heffler in 1996, seven. 
And he about swears me to secrecy. He's like, I got this idea. It's going to be huge. Okay. And he lays out the case for the digital dial board. And I'm just mind blown. Like, dude, that's brilliant. You're going to be a millionaire, right? (laughs) And uh, as it turns out, it goes like 10 years before anything is introduced. I think, I think Jeff actually looked into it. And I believe Dead and Bear held the patent on this forever. It never did anything with it. And then when they did, I don't know if you remember the original Dead and Bear dial board. A, oh, yes. You had to, um, you had, it, it only worked with a Dead and Bear delay box, which then and now is like using a damn abacus, right? I mean, they're, they're, they're bless the people at Dead and Bear, but like yes. it's the most antiquated thing in the world, right? Arrows and all kind of Yeah, crap. like you need, yeah, it's like, <laughs> it's like learning a whole different language, right? So, and then their dial board was like two feet long. Like it was the most hideous. It was huge. Yes. Right? So <laughs> My nephew he, has one. Yes. <laughs> finally, the, the patent ran out on that and everybody started making them and they got better. And Yeah. But so that's that's Texas Tech, because it's like we look at Texas Tech and go, wow, like this is the new thing. But they've been there forever. Like, why were why weren't they ever good? Like, why didn't somebody come up with digital dial boards before? <laughs> that's the connection. Yeah. <laughs> Great stuff. They'll be taking on Duke. Luke, I don't know if you heard that Duke's in the tournament and Mike Shashevsky, their coach, is uh, is coaching his final season. I don't know if you've caught that by Had chance. Had no idea. Really? On ESPN. I mean, they only show it every six and a half minutes for He's, the past uh, six months. I mean, some would say that he might be the greatest of all time when he hangs him up. Yeah. Uh, some are saying it, would say it, and will continue to say it for sure. Really? And he could be. Uh, obviously, he's a, an excellent coach, but uh, – but they are represented by something that, you know, I, I guess the last 20 years of racers don't even know that, that there was a time prior to this. But Auto Start. Auto Start was that, that thing they come up with to keep people from playing games up on the starting line. Like we we get, can't have any more of those games. So we had to come up with Auto Start. And once that one racer decides to stage, then the other one's got a certain amount of time to get in or the race is over. And well, uh, that's changed the game. It has absolutely changed the game. So you youngins, you probably heard the term like, oh, I got a quick tree. Ah, I got a long tree. <laughs> Y'all don't know what a quick tree or a long tree was. There was a time when there was a dude or a lady that literally flipped the switch that determined when the tree would come out. And the good ones would stage, stage, one, two, click. But there's a human element to that. So sometimes it was one, two, three, oh, click. Sometimes it was one, two, four, 82, 71. Oh, it's the other tree. Like, yeah. there, there was very, there was a lot more randomness in when the tree came on, right? And a time. The, the main idea behind auto start was to automate that process. Again, it's hard to believe that it took us decades of bracket racing to come up with this idea. It seems pretty simple in this day and age, but yeah, that was the purpose of auto start. Now within it, obviously they also decided to eliminate staging games, but as we know now, know, um, there's ways to manipulate auto start too. So we haven't really done away with staging games as they've just evolved. Right. And that's the connection here to, to coach K and the Duke blue devils, because 
Coach K, for all of his greatness, like I think we're all a little bit tired of the bit, right? Like, oh God, Coach K again. And we just look for look for something to pick apart. Like there's got to be a reason. 20 years from now, we'll all look back and unequivocally say it's either K or wouldn't, like the greatest of all time. Right now we're just like, God, I'm so beat over the head with this Coach K thing. Well, that's auto start. Everybody bitches about it because there's ways to beat it, this and that. All right, for all of you that are whining about auto start, turn it off. Let's see how you like that. We're better off for having auto start. Yes. As much as I hate to admit it, we're probably better off for having Coach K. Oh, look, that was put so so well. A uh, very good tie-in to those uh, inventions tied to the teams, and it makes it all make sense when you think about it because we need auto start, and as bad as people hate it, we need Duke and Coach K. <laughs> I hate Christian Layton. Uh, speaking <laughs> of Duke, the University of North Carolina also still in the tournament. And Carolina's old school, man. They're a blue blood. So we had to we had to roll back the clock a little bit. Carolina, when I think when 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 old school, old head basketball fans think North Carolina basketball, they think four corners, right? Which is the most antiquated way to 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 run out the clock you could imagine, just before the shot clock. Well, when we take things back a little bit in racing, how about the fluid release trans break? This is not a huge deal even today in bracket racing circles, but pro tree racers, super class racers, the fluid release trans break, it's basically akin today to going from a, a bracket valve body to a pro tree valve body. It's like a three, three or four hundredths of a second at a time when nobody could red light. So some of the people that figured this out early, Steve Cohen comes to mind. Steve Cohen won the first NHRA Super Comp World Championship and nearly went undefeated on the season. Like he wrecked up a, a record that will never be touched. I think at that, I don't, I don't know the numbers. I'm going to speak out of turn, but I think maybe you could amass points at 10 races. And I want to say Steve won nine of them, but he had one of, if not the first fluid release trans breaks. And he had four hundreds on the tree, like every round. So of course he's going to win, right? So in my, in, in my parallel here, Steve Cohen is Dean Smith, the fluid release trans break, North Carolina basketball. Can you, can you, can you follow? Oh, absolutely follow that. That was, a, I mean, again, such a great tie-in and put so well by you. And, you know, I put you, way too much thought into this. <laughs> you talk about, uh, you talk about Cohen doing what he did. I mean, it, it, it's legend status, what he accomplished. And this device certainly was well ahead of its time. It was, uh, it was something that, that people had to see work before they would believe in something like that. And obviously it's been surpassed now by, by the latest and greatest pieces in that, that product family. But, uh, but that invention and that thought, you think about somebody that come up with that, Luke, that sit around and said, you know what? I wonder if we try this right here. It's amazing when you sit that you could take so many pieces of our sport and just kind of be like, and somebody thought of that for the first time, right? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> very impressive. cool. Yeah, yeah, that was a, a smart person, man, woman, whomever it was. Look, they're facing another blue blood, and this could be the bluest of bloods. This is the UCLA Bruins. 
a team that holds the record for the most consecutive championships um, and probably the most, I, I would assume they have the most of any college team in totality. And I doubt it'll ever be surpassed. And, and certainly they're still competitive today, so that they might still get more somewhere down the road. But the UCLA Bruins, uh, you know, an all-time legendary university, is, uh, is being represented by the invention of the LED bulb. Now, you, you, we talked about this a little pre-show. You know, the, the bulb's been around forever, just like UCLA. It was great. Why mess with it? And we just accept it for what it is. It's, it's the best thing that we can come up with. And then all of a sudden, things just seem to get a little better. And the bulbs get a little better and a little more consistent. And now the, the, it, when they're burning over and over and over per round, they don't change. The, the illumination doesn't change in them. They're LEDs. They come on the same every time. They go out the same every time. So they're just kind of the latest, greatest yet. It's the bulb. It's been around. It's what the sport started with, bulb. UCLA, much like that, is what the sport started with. They're winning ways, and they have just found ways to continue to make themselves evolve with college basketball and the way the game's changing. You know, they used to do it with a, a seven-footer and a couple of quick guys, and the game changes, and so does UCLA, and the LED bulbs are a big change in our sport. And... Uh, you know, there's a lot of debate, Luke, about if that's good for the sport, that LED bulb. Man, that thing changed everything, made everybody where they can hit it and all this and that. But I love the LED bulbs. Again, I get a little more worser at night instead of getting better like I used to. So I have to pull numbers out of the box in the dark. And when you foot breaking, oh, my God, you better throw you a 200 or, or 2100. I mean, uh. 300, 200, 300 RPMs on it and, and get it on up there. You're not going to hit the bulb. At least I can't, not at 50. But LED bulbs, I think, have been really good for the sport. And I think UCLA is good. I think it's good to see UCLA competitive and battling out there with all these latest and greatest teams. It's great to see the Blue Bloods back. Yeah, absolutely. So to your point on the, the LEDs, I feel like there was a lot more nuance to an incandescent bulb where like experience played a lot bigger role because there were literally times like you would get a, a shaded tree or shaded eyes and, and you might have to roll 10, 15 thousandths in the box. And then um, the sun come back out and you have to pull it right back out. Right. And to know, to a be conscious enough to even notice that. And then B to know, the amount to compensate, you know, it, it did, it took a lot more experience, but the LED thing, I think it's a microcosm of a lot of the things that we're talking about in, in terms of these innovations. And I think obviously the big one was the delay box that we hooked to Gonzaga, but you go on down the line, the delay box, LED bulbs, auto start, crosstalk, like on down the line, all of these innovations have made it, for lack of a better term, made it easier to do what we do on a consistent basis. And what that's done is create more and more parity, which again, like, like it or not, I think it's hard to argue that that has not been, I'll say good for the sport, but at the very least a catalyst for 
the the type of the, the level of interest that we have, particularly in bracket racing and specifically in big dollar bracket racing, all of those things contribute to that. Again, just giving more people the feeling that they can compete, like I can win. And I don't think without all of those innovations increasing that parity, I don't think we ever get there. Yes, definitely created parity loop because you you'll remember back in the day of the incandescent bulb, you had those guys that were hitting the bottom and they were hitting it as it was coming on. You remember those guys? Yeah, oh, yeah, yeah, I could see yeah. it coming. I saw yeah. the electricity coming into that that's ball. Right. That's, when, that's when I smack it right then. Yeah, like, I hit. I don't. I don't wait till it's fully lit up. I just hit right. it as it's coming on. Like man, yeah, the, you can the see the filament that is awesome. just starting to get warm when I. Go. <laughs> yeah, you're mm -hmm. freaking good. Yeah, we don't have to worry about the filament anymore. Shouts to the filament. <laughs> All right, next on our list, going down, we're at the very bottom now of the left side of your bracket. We've got the Purdue Boilermakers, and the, the tie-in here, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to attach long-throw transbrake buttons. And in any really other aid to help, like, cleanly hit the bottom bulb without a delay box, I'm going to attach those to the Purdue Boilermakers. And you follow me along here. The reason that I'm attaching long-throw transbrake buttons to the Purdue Boilermakers, where's Purdue located, Big Jed? Purdue is in uh, Indiana. That's right, Lafayette, Indiana. When I think of crazy, bizarre contraptions to hit the bottom bulb, honestly, given my background, like one of the first names that comes to mind is Jerry Heffler. I think I've shared some of those stories in the past. But from the stories that I've heard, another name that comes to mind, how about Mark Seymour, who resides in, Jed? Florida. No. Indiana. No <laughs> yeah. yeah. Okay. I didn't know where it is. <laughs> <laughs> so, so I think the origins of this story, and, and again, we'd have to get someone from maybe maybe Mark himself on the show, but someone from that neck of the woods and in, in that time frame. But I believe the origins of the story were like NHRA Division Three for a year or two everybody had gone to delay boxes and then division three or that that area of the country for a year or two said no mas no no delay boxes are not allowed and mark seymour had obviously dominated however you wanted to race like he's a legend of the sport first ballot hall of famer right well he was obviously when delay boxes were introduced he's one of the first to have one was one of the first to catch on was one of the first to realize how to use it to his advantage and it became very very clear to mark I am much, much better with this tool. So when they eliminated it, Mark Seymour began thinking of, okay, how can I still react to the top bulb? Because I'm way more consistent reacting to the top bulb than I am, you know, trying to wait for the bottom. Makes sense, right? So Mark's like, I got to be able to do that without a delay box. So legend has it, Mark Seymour probably tried multiple ideas. But one that I heard was he bought like, a, I don't know, 10, 20,000 foot spool of wire and had it in the passenger seat of his Camaro. And that was the wire from the transbrake button to the transbrake solenoid thinking, if it's got to travel long enough, I can slow that signal down. Oh my okay. That didn't quite get him there. At one point, this came from, um, I believe it came from Mike Ledford talking about, 
obviously the Ledford family has run in Michigan Motorplex for ever, as far as I'm concerned, right? Mark Seymour, legend has it, showed up to an event, I, I believe it, at the Michigan Motorplex or whatever it was called in that day, in this time frame, with perhaps the spool of wire and a fish tank in front of his face. The idea being that when he looks through a full tank of water, it distorts the light long enough that he can like go. The track operators got wind of this and be like, man, you can't race with 10 gallons of water in front of your face. They put a stop to that. But that type of ingenuity, that's what I'm talking about here. Now, this led to the progression of long throw buttons. And obviously that's to slow you down so you can hit the bottom clean. But it all stemmed from this idea of like, how can I have delay without having a delay box? And I attribute some of that back to Mark Seymour, who's from Indiana, as are the Purdue Boilermakers. So Purdue represents long-term transbrake buttons. Luke, I, I don't care what team is associated with or what the gadget is. That story was incredible. I mean, that... <laughs> that Mark Seymour thought about those types of things and thought of ways to figure out how to help that allow him to hit the top bulb, to put a fish bowl in front of your face. <laughs> I mean, that's freaking awesome right there. I mean, I, I, I couldn't imagine what goes through somebody's head that they can think of things like that. So pretty cool stuff. On the show sometime. I remember the first time I met Mark Seymour and I'm getting way off topic, but that's kind of what this topic's about. Mark Seymour, do you remember when George Howard did like the once a month, 10 granders at Huntsville, like late nineties? Oh and yeah. It was, everybody had to go. So I made the trip from Texas to one of those. Mark Seymour made the trip from Indiana and we were partner each other next to each other. And Seymour's got this, I'm going to say 32-foot tag trailer. And out of it roll two kind of matching, rough, beat-up, like first-generation Camaros. And he's, you know, running both cars and running the wheels off of them. I believe he won the race. And uh, we get about midway through the night, and uh, I'd got to talk to him. He was a super nice guy. And I said, Mark, um, how'd you get these cars here? That trailer? Both of them? Yeah, yeah. Isn't that kind of tight? Oh, it's real tight. Okay. When he wins the race, and I watch him load up, and he literally drives the first car in until it hit the front wall of the trailer, and he drove the second car in until it hit the first car, and then he closed the door, <laughs> and that was it. I said, Margaret, did you did I miss that? Did you tie those down? No, no, I didn't tie them down. Why not? And he looked at me like that was the dumbest question ever. He goes, where are they going to go? <laughs> Stretch no both ends. Yeah, that's, <laughs> that's a great point. That's good stuff. All right. So Purdue and long throw transbrake buttons will take on the Cinderella story of the tournament, Big Jed. It is the St. Peter's Peacocks. Yeah, the Peacocks. Uh, everybody's Cinderella story. The, the bracket busters uh, across the world, certainly across the nation. Nobody. And I mean, nobody had St. Peter's go into the Sweet 16. Uh, they got by the Blue Blood in Kentucky first round. I don't even remember who they beat last round, Luke. I'm sure you the do. Racers, Murray State. 
tie this yes, back in? Yes, yes, beat Murray uh, State with a 30-win team that, that people had going deep in the tournament. So, yeah, St. Peter's beating everybody that they shouldn't beat. And why would you want to put anything else associated with a team like that except for mulligans? I mean, you got to put mulligans. You got to put the buyback in there for, for a team like St. Peter's because, you know, these teams are losing to them and they shouldn't be losing, so they need a second chance. But St. Peter's is the mulligan that you don't get. And, so, and <laughs> those, guys are, those guys are lighting it up. They're awesome to watch. You could make the argument that buybacks have been a positive thing for our sport, right? It, I don't even want to go too deep into that, but I'm gonna we're gonna we're taking this one step further. Buybacks didn't make our list. Mulligans did, and I don't know. Like some of our younger listeners may be like, "What are you? What are you talking about? What's a, what's a mulligan?" So buybacks got instituted. Buybacks took off, right? And everybody accepted them, and and it and it made things easier on promoters. I think the majority of racers have come to like buybacks because it, it lessens our initial entry fee. And, and basically you, you have to pay more if you don't perform. Right. And, and it makes it to where if you lose early, you don't necessarily have to go home. Right. So th there's a lot of pros for buybacks. So, you know, buybacks took off and like, Oh, well, first round buybacks work. Let's do second round buybacks. And that seemed to be widely accepted for a, a long period of time. Well, somebody got the bright idea, like, well, hell, if you can buy back first or second round, let's just give everybody a buyback. You use it whenever you need it. That's the mulligan. Okay. That is, it's basically a, a double elimination tournament. And it, and it kind of like the way I said it, it sounds kind of sexy. It's like, yeah, that makes sense. Why are we rewarding the people that lose first round? Right. Why not eighth round? In practice, the mulligan race was never particularly well received. Have you, have you, can you tell me the, a story of participating in a mulligan race, Jed? Oh, 100%. We called it an ace race back ace. in the day at, at Laster Mountain, and it was good all the way to the final, Luke. If you had not used your you, – you bought it when you got there. You paid your entry fee, and you bought your mulligan, and it was called a mulligan, and you – held it until you needed it and you could use it in the final round and i did watch final round get run three times one night at the ace race where both <laughs> racers was holding their mulligan and they had to battle it out until the till the mulligans were gone so and quite honestly i was a huge fan of those today i would hate it but at oh, the I mean, time it is a way to take a race that has 30 cars in it and make it last all day and all night. Ain't no doubt. At the time, welcome back, my friends, to the race that never ends. We're so <laughs> glad you could attend. You know? Yes. So I have, uh, I have, go ahead, go ahead. I don't want to interrupt your story. No, I was just saying I, I won Mulligan races and, and I got beat late in them where I, you know, got beat by somebody that was holding a Mulligan and um, they were all marathons, no matter. No matter where you finished, they were all marathons. So you're 100% correct. I've probably been a part of, I don't know, maybe a half dozen mulligan races in my life to stand out. The first was, at least to my knowledge, the, the, the conception of the mulligan. And it was at Thunder Valley Raceway Park, Noble, Oklahoma, like early to mid 90s. I didn't have a driver's license yet. I wasn't racing. Right. But I was at the event and the idea that they came up with to introduce this was 
we're not going to mess with the regular format. So we're going to keep all of the winners together and they're just going to run off. But when you lose, you fall into the mulligan bracket. Okay, now, in theory, that sounds okay mm -hmm. too, right? Yep. In practice, what it meant was we ended up with two finalists. And I remember it like it was yesterday. It was Nathan Martin and Jeff Heffler. Nathan had come through the winner's side. So I believe for Nathan, the final round, no buybacks, right? Everybody had a mulligan. But on that winner's side, it was the, the field was cut in half each round. So for Nathan, the final round was round eight. Meanwhile, as that winner's side was whittling down each round, every loser was added to the mulligan side. So the mulligan side just kept getting bigger. If I'm not mistaken, <laughs> Jeff Hefter, when he staged for the final round, was going on to round 14. Oh and he gosh. had to beat Nathan twice. Holy cow. Yeah. So there's a lot of different ways to do the mulligan race. I haven't really seen one that I particularly liked. <laughs> that was one way to go about it that was obviously flawed. The other mulligan race that I actually competed in was at Prescott raceway um back in the day it might have been the arkansas state championships ever tell you as an arkansas state champion i think i've heard that before yes twice twice um so mulligan race at prescott and i'm driving my father's altered and i get down to like six cars and i still have my mulligan sweet i win i come back and there's five and i lose and i come back because i got my mulligan there's still five i win i come back there's four I win, I come back, there's three. The race never ended. Yes. <laughs> we got out of six cars and we were seven win lights away from winning the race. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, you had to win more from six on than you did to get there. Uh, all right, so the St. Peter's Peacocks will represent Mulligans. All right, so moving over to the right side of the bracket, this is one of my personal favorites. Uh, this had to make the list. It was, uh, it was a contribution from producer Mark, and it is the maddie box whoa we just opened pandora's box we have connected the maddie box to the arizona wildcats now see if you can follow along here arizona a very solid team new coach seems to be completely on the up and up but there was a time not long ago where that program was riddled with impropriety we were paying players back when you weren't supposed to play players too bit of a cloud hanging over the Arizona Wildcats. It doesn't really have anything to do with this current team. That's kind of like the Matty Box and like that whole region of racing. So the, see if you can follow along here. Like who is in today's world the Ohio-based racer that has the absolute most pristine reputation? Like it'd have to be Hastings, right? Yeah, I would say so. Okay. so. That Nick Hastings is Tommy Lloyd, the new Arizona head coach, right? But like he's from this cloud of all this area and all of his buddies, like they were part of the Maddie box. So, like, can we root for Nick Hastings? Of course we can, just like we can root for Tommy Lloyd. But there is that like cloud of around that. That's my connection. That's Arizona and the Maddie box. Because let's take a step back from this. Like, I, I feel like we are 25 years. Yeah, 25 years removed from this. And it's still, when I say the word Maddie Box, like people still get like blood boiling, right? Like our generation, like, oh my God, ugh, let's get those guys, the dirty dozen, right? 
let's take a step back from that for just a second. Uh, Rich Matty, or I believe it was Father Mike Matty that actually invented this whole thing, right? Like it was actually a legit, like there was ads in Joni's National Dragster for the original Matty box, right? What everybody got up in arms about was that at some point NHRA said like that thing's not legal, right? And, and outlawed it. And then supposedly um, they, they came, found a way to reinvent it you know, in a, in a way that wasn't as obvious, right? It was very much hidden, but it did the same thing. But what the Matty box did essentially was to tell you position on the racetrack and basically like, hey, you're going too fast. Hey, you're going too slow. And just think back, like that to me sounds like Star Wars type technology today, but I know that technology like that is like much more readily available. Take us back to like 1990. And it's not like Mike Matty could call up MSD and Autometer and say, okay, look, here's what I'm trying to do, right? <laughs> I need the tack to display like 5,000 is going dead on, but if it goes over that, I'm going too fast. And it's going to be based off a drive shaft sensor and engine RPM. But if it's going too slow, then I want the tack to be low. Like, it's not like you could call those engineers and be like, okay, here's what I'm doing. He figured all that out. Now, yeah. it's blatantly illegal if that's what exactly the way it happened. Like, and there's no excuse for that. It's still pretty damn impressive. Very. So I think it qualifies as one of the most creative innovations in our sport. There's no doubt, Luke. That that was a that was a genius idea, and and certainly as you mentioned, in its beginning was, you know, not something that anybody had thought of. So it couldn't be illegal because nobody ever dreamed of anything like that. <laughs> right. You know, you your car was your car was what three tenths to half a second slower than what it would really run. And, you know, it gave the car room to speed up if it needed to speed up, if it sensed wheel spin or some kind of issue. And it gave it room to slow down a little, if it needed to slow down, if it was going to go a little faster than it was supposed to go. And it was an incredible invention. Now, once it was outlawed and, and the fact that it was still getting used by the, the infamous dirty dozen that's where uh, it gets a little sticky that does get a little sticky and <laughs> um you know again not and i don't think that those guys were just lifelong cheaters by any means um but you know they they definitely were using something that that shouldn't have been used and they got the punishment that goes along with the crime but certainly uh as far as inventions go and and things that are as innovative as you could possibly think of the maddie box probably tops them all it really does it was an incredible all right so the arizona wildcats aka the maddie box they will be taking on in the sweet 16 the houston is it the cougars houston cougars is that right they are the cougs the cougs the cougs will represent sandbagging yeah, like dialing slower than you could go. This kind of goes back to the delay box thing. Like, I don't know who invented sandbagging, but at some point, somebody sat down and said, you know, if I just make sure I can go under, I should be ahead. And then I can lift off the throttle and not break out. Somebody thought of that for the first time. Like at some point, that was an original idea. And we talked a little bit off air. The reason that we, we got to the Houston Cougars here was that in your mind, Big Jed, and, and I'll, I might be biased in this, but in my mind as well, like whoever came up with the idea to sandbag seems like they should have been from the state of Texas. Houston, oh, state of no Texas. Doubt. That's the correlation. 
No doubt sandbagging was invented in Texas. Um, the, the people that have molded our sport into what it is come from that area. And somebody out there figured out, you know what? Every time I beat somebody, they're two or three above. And every time I get beat, I'm two or three above. So if I will dial to cover that, I can get in front and control the race. And really all I got to do is have a better reaction than them. And I'm probably going to win. And my reaction times are usually better. There were no time slips, no tickets. They were all cards, like business cards. So they, they pulled their business cards out, Luke, and they looked at them and went, crap. <laughs> Every time I get beat, this is what's happening. So I know how to fix that. And they fixed it and changed the game for ever luke when sandbagging started i bet less than five percent of the racers at the track could run dead on now oh i mean i remember this is this dates back to like as recently as the mid 90s like i i was i've told this story before but i was in charge of my father's dial-in like that's what he that's what he trusted me with and the dial-in this was like not just us. This was the common thing at Texas Raceway, which was like the hotbed of racing in that time or one of the hotbeds. If he went 661 and 663 and 665 in that order, there was no way we were dialing slower than 660. Because if you break out, you lose. <laughs> yes. <laughs> that was it. Like you can't, you can't go under, then you automatically, that's worse than red light. That is true. Breaking out was a was terrible thing to do. And man, it just tore people up when they break out. But when someone, just quite the opposite, when someone would go down and put the brakes on and go one or two above, you know, them sandbaggers, boy, they got cussed like dogs. And, you know, like I say, back then, less than 5% could run the dial in. And today, less than 5% can't. So it's, uh, it's pretty amazing what sandbagging and the whole idea of holding numbers has done to our sport. And Houston is that team that, you know, you're not real sure how good they are, but you know they're good. You're not real sure how much they can accomplish out there, but that team's just kind of kind of tricking their way right through it. They're, they're pretty good. They, they lost. They're covering their light. They're covering yeah. their light. They lost to some teams they shouldn't have lost to during the year. Alabama was one of them. My God, how do you lose to Alabama? They were so bad. But Houston is uh, is making some noise, and, you know, people starting to not like them because they're not supposed to be there. So should be interesting to see how that one plays out. All right, next on our bracket, the Villanova Wildcats up against the Michigan Wolverines. And this is this is the spring fling game. We'll explain. Villanova will represent the idea of separating door cars from dragsters. And correct me if I'm wrong, Big Jed, this was a Kyle Seipel creation. Like he was the first to really come up with this on a, on a wide scale, right? Certainly on a, on a, a big money scale, yes. Um, anything that, that we would view as a significant or premier event in our sport Yes, the Spring Fling did it, and it uh, was wildly successful. So the reason that I, I connected this to Villanova, I think most are familiar with amazing Villanova head coach, Jay Wright. 
And Jay Wright is credited in basketball circles as like a genius. When in reality, what Jay Wright really did was sit back and say, you know what? You get more points for making a three-point basket than you do for making a two-point basket. Three is better than two. We should shoot more threes. Now, that seems like so obvious. But 15 years ago, that was groundbreaking. Brilliant. Today, we see as many door cars as we do dragsters at the racetrack, sometimes more. 10 years ago, door cars were a dying breed because they weren't considered competitive. To win a $10,000 bracket race, you had to have a pipe rack. Kyle Seipel said, well, what if we just separate them? Would the door cars come back? They don't have to beat, they don't have to beat all the directions. They just got to beat one. Again, now we look at it and go, well, yeah, obviously. 15 years ago, mind blown. That's the correlation. Okay. So Villanova represents door cars, dragsters run separate. I called this the spring fling matchup because PJ North's Michigan Wolverines, Big Jed, are representing true start another innovation that gets credited to peter biondo and kyle seipel we can talk a little bit the roots go a little bit deeper than that but true start the idea that the first red is not necessarily dead it is the worst red that loses this is an idea that's been gaining steam now for several years uh and we're going to hook it to the michigan wolverines we'll get a lot of pushback i think from the old heads saying that the true start idea um, uh, came to conception with Peter Biondo and Kyle Seipel. I know where you can go with this. When you think true start, worst red light, what's the first thing that comes to mind? Well, you think the, the one that you thought lost didn't lost. So, you know, I, I, I don't know exactly what she's looking for from an answer there, but. Now, true I mean, start- who do you attribute the idea to? Oh, my goodness. Um, you talking about implementing it into the races? Yeah. Oh, that was uh, definitely Steve Taylor. Yes. The late, now, great Steve Taylor. My, you could look back on this now and say, oh, my God, Steve Taylor was so far ahead of his time because he was beating this drum. And I mean, beating this drum. Yes. What? 30 years ago, 25 years ago anyway. And, and True Start didn't become a thing until the last decade. Now, correct me if I'm wrong, Jed, my memory of Steve Taylor's worst red light proposal was a little bit different, in, in, at least in my mind, a little bit more convoluted than what actually came to fruition with True Start. Would you agree with that or no? No, no. I Yeah, I agree wholeheartedly. It was, uh, it was closest to perfect package Right. Regardless right. of what side you fell on, it, you know, if you were two thou under that still got credit for for being dead on with a two, basically. Right. Right. So it basically would eliminate any finish line driving as we know it. But the, the basis of this, the basis of Steve's idea was it's un, fundamentally unfair in a game that has prided itself on making things fair to the fast car and the slow car to the, the, you know, expensive race car and the, and the budget race car. It is fundamentally unfair to say that the first car that leaves starting line, the slower car, when red is the automatic loser. Why shouldn't the worst red light be punished? Why is it first not worst? And at that time, we, and I say we, because I was among the ringleaders, 
just laugh that off. It's like, that's the stupidest thing we ever heard. And again, there was some, there were some stipulations to, to Steve Taylor's idea that, that I, I still don't necessarily agree with, but that was the fundamental of it that now I think is still gaining wide acceptance, but ultimately like really makes sense. Like, why did we penalize the first red light other than I think that was all the timing system was capable of, right? Um, uh, to start makes more sense. Yeah, it makes way more sense. And, uh, and you know, Drag Racing 2000 was the idea. That drag Steve Racing had. 2000, and, yes. And it, it was obviously in the late 90s is when that was, uh, the internet was starting to get hot and message boards were a thing that everybody participated in. So Drag Racing 2000 was his idea. And it was, you know, we, we've got Y2K coming. Everything's supposed to change. Let's make this change for Drag Racing 2000 and make it the best package. The closest to perfect gets the win. And I never could get behind that. But a portion of that was the first or worst red light and actually the worst red light losing. And that was something I, I thought was a good idea, but I never thought we'd see it just because it would be such a huge change in racing. And again, Peter and Kyle, you know, very innovative and, and certainly um, taking on some risk there by putting it in their, all of their events. And I think by and large, it's been a, a welcome change and something that doesn't have near the impact that we gave it credit for when it first came out. I think the, the numbers say it impacts less than 1% of the runs in a, a three, four, five day event. So it's a very small change, but it certainly has, uh, has been pretty cool to see it when it, when it happens at a key moment in the race. And, you know, you just think that's the way it should be. So a uh, really good invention and, and certainly uh, fitting for the, the Michigan Wolverines. They, uh, they're a team that, you know, we think they should lose because they, they're not supposed to win some of these teams they're beating. So they got to be losing, yet their win light comes on and because maybe they were the first loser, but they wasn't the worst loser. And Wait, they, Michigan's still in? They just went red. <laughs> yeah, exactly. They just went red, but their win light came on. So good stuff. Uh, we work our way into the, the lower right quadrant of the bracket. We'll wrap this up. The Kansas Jayhawks, Big Jed, the one seed in their region. Do you know anything about, forget college basketball, basketball? Like, who invented basketball? Dr. James Naismith. Where did Dr. James Naismith reside? Kansas. He coached the first basketball team at the University of Kansas. Kansas is the epicenter, the birth of basketball. Well, what's the birth of sportsman drag racing as we know it? What idea started it all? The dial-in. We're going back to the roots. Whoever came up with the idea, you know, I got this 11-second car here, and I got this 8-second car here, and I, I need both of their money. How can I give them both a chance to win? What if I gave the 11-second car a 3-second head start? <laughs> Mind-blowing once again. It's like putting peach baskets up on the wall, bitch. You know, back in the old days, Luke, that that was a peach basket. So they had put the the first original handicaps. You know, they they had the index. So your car should go 1180 and my car should go a 1080. So you get a second head start. That was the first handicap. Well, they realized 
well, you can just outrun your index. You can break out. So really just the faster car compared to their index is going to win. That's not really giving everybody a fair shake. So then they put the cars out in front of the other cars. They did the, the old give them the hit, give them the car links and the hit street outlaws style racing way before that was popular and on TV. They'd put the car out there, two car links in front. So in theory, you're this much slower, so you get this much of a head start. Well, no, that doesn't work either because it's a running head start's way more gooder than a sitting still head start. So way more good. Then somebody finally figured out, well, this is what we'll do. If if it says it takes him eight seconds and takes me eleven seconds, then I get a three second head start from the same spot. And in theory, if he has this as good a reaction time as me or better, then he'll catch me by the time we get to the finish line. And lo and behold. It shaped our sport into what it is today. So the dial-in is the beginning of the sport. That's where it all started by that idea. And of course, Kansas is the beginning of basketball. So great tie-in together for those two. I wonder who we could attribute the dial-in to. I mean, you're going way back, right? You know, that's a great question. It's something I probably Brett Kepner. Uh, is yeah. one of probably four people in the world that knows the answer to that. So we need to ask Brett. Answer, if anybody knows the answer to that question, you're dead on. It's Kepner. We, we, we're going to do some research. All right. So Kansas and the Dial-In in their Sweet 16 matchup will be taking on the Providence Friars. Now, the story of Providence's season, they've had a tremendous season. They won the Big East, uh, got a great record. They were a four seed in the tournament. And yet the naysayers say Providence is lucky. Providence is lucky because they keep winning close games. So it comes down to the, the, the tried and true argument. Like, is there skill in continually winning close games? Or is that just a lot of randomness, right? There's no skill in winning close games. Similar to, so basically like Providence is tricking the computers. So that's what everybody says. All the Providence naysayers say, ah, their computer numbers are really good. They're not that good. Kind of like tricking your opponents with, throttle stop or better yet a stutter box a big jed somebody <laughs> was just walking out of their shop and went stutter box the hell's a stutter box again we're going to show our age but for the unenlightened tell me what a stutter box was and what it did well a stutter box um was obviously a rev limiter that would be uh it would come into play on the racetrack, Luke. It would it would make your car run a slower time by getting against the rev limiter and, and slowing its momentum down. And it would just change the it change the look of the race by uh, the the car running a, a different mile an hour than the ET should call for and make it a little more difficult to judge them at the finish line. Some people would would implement it early in the run. It would leave and it would just stutter, uh, much like the throttle stop limits the power of the car, and it would take off. And there, I saw some people that would stutter at the last, you know, 150 feet of the racetrack and make their uh, make their car slow down significantly. So the the gradual um, the gradual gain that you would have on a race car changed instantly in that last 150 feet, and make them hard to judge. So you understand all that, but the stutter box was basically a throttle stop 
but it just limited the RPMs for a certain period of time. It had its own delay box tied to it. And they didn't, when I first saw them, they didn't have a, a stutter box that was its own box. It was just another delay box that was wired through the, the rev limiter that would, when at whatever time was in it, it would just click it off and the car would take off again. So those stutter boxes were uh, really cool when they first come out and people would use them a lot. And then all of a sudden they just became the devil and you had to, well, you, you had to check with where you was going to race to see if stutter boxes was allowed because the, there wasn't any internet to tell you, don't bring your stutter box. And there wasn't really event flyers floating around on the internet. So you had to check, are y'all allowing stutter boxes? The stutter box, to your point, it was like a throttle stop, only to use your words, way more better. Because what we've tried to emulate for years with throttle stop is to maintain a level RPM for the time that we're on the throttle stop. We got that idea from the stutter box because that's all the stutter box did. It was a rev limiter. And it absolutely neutralized, like if the motor is turning the exact same RPMs for that period of the racetrack, then the wheels should be turning the exact same numbers RPMs. Like they were ridiculously consistent. And I have no idea if this is true, but it sounds like a great story. So I'm going to run with it. I'm going to say that the stutter box got invented years ago because some moron put his 7,000 high side chip in the two-step and put his 3,800 launch chip in the high side and his car left the starting line and just beat and banged up against the high side. And he wasn't smart enough to figure out what the hell he'd done. So he's changing spark plugs and everything like that. And he can't fix it. his car. has got this God awful miss, but you know what? My 650 car is going 820, but you know what it does? It goes 820 every freaking time. Can you believe that? This thing's got a God awful miss. It's two seconds slow, and it just keeps running the same thing. <laughs> and then at some point, he realizes what he's done, and he's like, wait a second. That's really consistent. Wait, that should be really consistent when you think about it. Hence, the stutter box. So it infiltrated into 90 racing. So rather than having a throttle stop on for a, a particular period of time, we just beat against the rev limiter. And it was insanely consistent. At least it was... 20 years ago, like, I don't know if by today's standards, having a stutter box would give you a monumental edge over today's technology, right? But back then, oh my God, like you could run the same thing all day long. No, nobody could do that. So stutter boxes uh, quickly got deemed illegal. I think for that reason, like partially that and partially the fact that the cars were going much, much slower than they were capable of, which if that's the reasoning, I don't know why throttle stops were ever allowed. So I think it was more the consistency thing <laughs> and they sounded awful. They sounded worse than throttle stops because you right. So stutter boxes, Providence, computer trickers. I was going to say the same thing. Like they, those things have come a long, you know, rev limiting has come a long, long way in how it works. But back in those days when they did it with stutter boxes, Oh it yeah. Sound like hammered hail. <laughs> <laughs> all right the last game in our bracket is two uh lower seated teams that were not favorites to make the sweet 16 in iowa state and the university of miami now we've taken the liberty once again to connect 
two of our favorite racing innovations to these two teams. Big Jed, I will let you lead us off with the the Iowa State Cyclones. Well, Iowa State is is that team that uh, you know the 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 one the Wolves pulled out, so to speak. It's, it's the team that you know shouldn't be there based on the natural progression of season to season. They they didn't perform well last year, and then they come out here this year and here they are making noise in the tournament and they're, they're Cinderella in it a little bit. So they're, they're just kind of getting pulled out of the fire game by game. So what other invention would you tie to them other than our good friend, Stephen Hughes uh, invention of the pullout, the, the handlebars that save those, the back of those arms, you know, the dragsters are silly pretty much in general, just getting in and out of those things is ridiculous. And I couldn't imagine doing that all race long, but the way you have to do it is just God awful. And then here comes the pullout. Stephen Hughes thought of this idea or somebody thought of it and Stephen put it in place, but I'm sure it was his idea. It's a nice little handlebar that you just have right up there in front of the driver that you're able to grab a hold of and pull yourself up out of the dragster with your hands instead of having to do it with the backside of your arms, which is that tender meat too, boy. That's, that's rough right there. Luke, do you get sore when you, maybe if you do it 10 million times like you have, you, you, it's not so bad, but does it get sore when you first start? Yeah, I don't notice it except for like the first week or two of the season. And you're like, oh my God, I've got this goofy bruise on the back of my would that be like on your tricep basically right that that like you said that meaty fatty part on the back of your upper mm-hmm. arm and then a couple of weeks in it gets calloused and you don't really even notice it but yeah the first couple of weeks of the season you're sore in places that you didn't realize you could be sore yeah so what a great invention you know the name's questionable i mean <laughs> i mean and we, yeah we, you could go yeah. a lot of different ways with it but i mean it's coming from haywood so <laughs> but it, it, it but it's certainly memorable you know, you're going to remember that invention simply by the name. Uh, so uh, it was a, it was a genius idea by Stephen. But nonetheless, the the pullout is a is a great invention, and it's it's that thing that just you know gets you up there, gets you out of trouble, and it gets you out of the out of the 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 seat and and pulls you up to the next level, raises you up out of whatever you're sitting in. And Iowa State's that team that just keeps getting pulled up to the next level game by game by game and they're representing this great device and and certainly uh that's a team that you need to keep your eye on but they're facing a team that you need to keep your eye on and luke this was yours right here so i'm going to let you talk about the miami hurricanes all right so the miami hurricanes will represent i think i think a, a significant percentage of our listener base will be familiar with this but it was the shoot the light. I mean, there's been a lot of different trans break <laughs> buttons developed over the years, ways to ways to activate the delay cycle. But the shoot the light might be the most creative. This was basically a, a pistol grip. I, I say was like I, you still see some of these floating around with a trigger. And I believe there was a, producer Mark was talking about this off the air. I believe there's a mushroom button on top. So like with your thumb, you would activate the mushroom button that, that would that would engage the trans brake. And then as the tree lit, you would pull the trigger to, to engage the delay cycle, right? Shoot the light. And it was obviously very popular specifically among, you know, outdoorsmen, hunters. Like, oh yeah, I'm really focused. 
you know, with my rifle, looking through the, what do they call that, the eyeglass? That's not the right word, is it? Scope, yeah. The scope, yes. That similar level of concentration, right? Breathing plays a big role, acute concentration. When that, when that light comes on, boom, pull the trigger, shoot the light. That's Miami. And it's one of those things because the advocates, the, the reason that, that we found the correlation here, the advocates for the shoot the light are like, shoot the light or die, ride or die with shoot the light, right? Like it is the greatest invention since sliced bread. That's how certain Miami fans are with head coach Jim Laranaga, right? They think this is the third time he's taken them to the Sweet 16. Outsiders are like, that dude's old. Like he went to Miami to retire, right? Like it's time to get somebody else in there. Hurricane fans are going, no, that's our guy, ride or die. Just like the shoot the lighters. Still see some of them. I haven't seen one of those things in ages. Okay, I haven't either, but it sounded good. <laughs> I mean, a friend of mine thought it was the best thing ever, and he said he used it a couple of weekends, and it pinched. He, he pinched his hand multiple Ooh. times, Ooh. and he said, it's just something about the way you have to hold it, pinching my hand. He got rid of it, and then all of a sudden, I heard a lot of people saying, yeah, it's just you know, a fad that, that didn't work out, much like the Miami Hurricanes. Mm. they're they're just a fad that's not going to work out so they seem like a great idea to pull for them but nah not so much i mean at one point it was a football school they can't really even claim that anymore can they? oh my gosh no they're terrible now they're worse than the, alabama's basketball team that's bad shoot the light pinching like to the point of drawing blood yeah not drawing blood but it would draw it to the surface you know how to get the old blood oh, blister from blood a pinch yeah, yeah. Yeah, I was. Yeah. I mean, when you thought it, when you talked about pinching and drawing blood, I got flashbacks to to dead on and the line lock button taken up. I've told that story here before, but <laughs> yes, <laughs> blood in the trans break button. <laughs> that can't be a good combination. No, that can't be good. It's awful. Luke, I heard a lot at the foot break one fifty. I mean, a lot of man. I really enjoy the podcast. Uh, you guys do. A- awesome job i'm enjoying listening to it we probably ruined that tonight with this recording nobody we, listened to this last part anyway yeah we, we probably ended a lot of people's love for the show but i had a blast this was a good time this was really about racing inventions more than it was basketball teams but since it's that time of year and we love basketball we tied it together so we hope y'all enjoyed it it was good stuff for us and we hope you uh, got some fun out of the, the stories, a little bit of stories we told about some of these devices and when we first saw them or saw them getting used. So good stuff. But that pretty much wraps us up for the night. Like it was uh, it was a lot of fun, though. It was. I think ultimately, do you have any predictions? I think ultimately it comes down to the delay box versus the dial-in. What do you think? Yeah, I'm definitely uh, choosing the delay box at this point. I, I think Gonzaga uh was a favorite i think they got their scare the other night they got through it and that probably woke them up to the point where nobody's going to be able to hang with them from here on out it's a it's a little less talented looking final 16 than i think a lot of people uh predicted so i believe gonzaga is the clear best team right now and should walk away with it that scare came from Memphis. Was Memphis the 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 spinner wheel at the head of staging? I think it could be. You know the, the to to pair cars. Like you got a, a wheel on it. You got four staging lanes. You got a wheel with one two three four, one two three four, one two three four. Yeah, <laughs> it, 
It could definitely be the spinner wheel. Uh, Memphis is the, Memphis is the junior dragster driver that won, uh, that's been winning for 10 years and now they've stepped into big cars and everybody says they're, you know, they're, they're talented. They're young, but they're talented and, and they're really, really good. Y'all better watch out for them. They're going to get after you and they do get after you a little bit, but 25 dead five is just a good lap. It's not good enough to beat the, the great laps, Luke. And that's yeah, Memphis. Yeah. Yeah, Memphis is 25 yeah. dead five. It is funny, like the 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 gap there. I know this happens in every um, geographic area, but I take a lot of pride in in kind of continuing the the legacy of where I come from, right? With, from from the the Richardsons to the Hefflers to Tommy Phillips to name. There's several more, and 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 you know, I I came from that lineage, and you cannot begin to count how many different racer names i've been told he's the next she's the next right from that area and outside of austin williams like there hasn't been a next it's austin but i bet i've heard yeah. two dozen names over the course <laughs> of the last 20 years right probably yeah yeah good so, stuff yeah. good analogy so that's it for us luke uh, listeners we appreciate you listening fun show lots of good stuff some racing some not racing but all in all wonderful time and uh, we appreciate you. If you're here in this part of the show, you've listened way longer than uh, we probably thought you would. But thank you for that. Uh, give us your pick. Tell us right there on the Sportsman Drag Racing Podcast Facebook page. what You can tell us what device you think wins, or you can tell us what team you think wins. But tell us who you think is going to get this done, just to see how many basketball fans we have out there. And uh, we'd love to hear your choice and see uh, which team you think is going to collect the, the hardware at the end of the season. And uh, if you're not comfortable telling us out there in front of everybody publicly, send us a message and let us know. Again, that's right there on the Sportsman Drag Racing Podcast Facebook page. Luke, this should be a, a shout-happy episode. You should have tons of shouts for this one. You, we got some good content here. I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to roll through this pretty quickly. Shouts to the hottest 70 degree day ever. I think I was on the opposite in Tucson. I think I was, I was part of the coldest 70 degree day ever. Desert nights, man. Crazy. Oh, I can Shouts imagine. to crew chief Jack. Shouts to more better. Shouts to more worser. Shouts to our age. There was so many throwbacks to during this episode they're like oh god i've been doing this way too long so many of those so thank you for that (laughs) shouts to mulligans five acts but especially mulligans shouts to the arkansas state championships shouts to drag racing 2000 rest Mm. in peace to the taylor shouts to peach baskets i thought you were the correlation you were going to draw was there was a time when your time slip would print out in the top floor of the tower, but you had to pick them up in the bottom floor of the tower. So they'd shoot it down PVC and it would land in a peach basket. I don't think it actually landed in a peach basket, but it sounded good. I should have said that it was a cardboard box where I raced, but nonetheless, it was, you know, an early invention of what was to come. So yeah, great. It was a great one there. I should have said that. I remember Ardmore Dragway specifically having this set up, and I think it was like a laundry basket. Oh, awesome stuff. Yeah, it had to have a wide, you know, like the, the PVC wasn't quite long enough. So you had to have a big <laughs> box for it to land in. 
Yeah, that's good stuff. And that's that's it. That's it. Great shouts. Shouts to bathtubs <laughs> and producers. <laughs> Inside joke, folks. Again, thank you for listening. If you'd like to tweet, get with us there on the Twitter. Luke is at Luke Bogacki, B-O-G-A-C-K-I. I am at JP11X. Fun show. Thanks for tuning in. And we will talk to you again real soon about more Sportsman Drag Race. Enrollment in This Is Bracket Racing Elite is now open. You've heard me discuss or at least reference This Is Bracket Racing Elite. It is the premier offering of our website, thisisbracketracing.com. Elite is a membership community designed specifically to help you get from where you are today as a racer to who you want to be as a racer. Led by knowledgeable professionals, Justin Lamb and myself are longtime instructors and we bring in a host of guests, racers that you know, racers that you respect, led by knowledgeable instructors and surrounded by supportive peers that are ultimately striving for the same goal in their own unique way. The truth is at each event, there are a hundred plus entries. There's one winner. At the end of each season, there's one champion. That feeling, not so much the money, not so much the trophy, that feeling of achievement, that sense of accomplishment, that tip of the cap from your peers, that's why we do this. You can dream of that feeling all you want, or you can take action, take steps toward becoming that racer. If you're ready to take the first step, this is Bracket Racing Elite is for you. Enrollment is open now for a limited time. Learn more at thisisbracketracing.com slash elite before we close the doors again on December the 8th.